Calgary guys staying at home. Ryan Pinder and Pat Steinberg talking sports, pop culture, life, and anything else. Your afternoon diversion is right here. Stream online at sportsnet.ca slash 960. Download the Sportsnet or Radio Player Canada apps. Pinder and Steinberg are on Sportsnet 960 The Fan. Hello, all. Happy Monday. Hopefully you had uh, a long weekend that was somewhat productive, that uh, gave you a distraction, and that didn't make you go crazy with boredom. How was our long weekend, gentlemen? It's Pat Steinberg, Ryan Pinder, and Logan Gordon along with you on your Monday edition of the program. Boys, how'd our, uh, how'd our long weekend go? Had a good one. We uh, have been co-isolating with my sister's family, as previously stated, numerous times. So we did a sleep overnight. The dads got into the sauce one night. We've watched more Star Wars, lots of puzzles, card games, a game of Catan, um, and on and on it goes. It was a great long weekend. I I feel very fortunate to have uh, some family in the bubble with me, Patty. Yeah, you are. Uh, you would. I, I would suggest that you would be one of the lucky ones in this regard. Not a lot of people have uh, got the ability to. Co- I mean, lots of people do, but lots of people don't have the ability to co-isolate. And and so I'm I'm happy that you've got that opportunity. What uh, most importantly, how did you uh, how did you fare at Catan? Um, I did not win, but uh, Catan, as we've talked about in the past, is such a contentious word to even mention or a proper noun to even utter that just the fact that we got four players uh to to sit down and play the game in its entirety was sensational we also it was uh without any fights which can't be said for many of the other activities we had over the course of the weekend and it was done under the 90 minute threshold which has been a contentious issue there's been some mythology around the game in our household that suggests it can take hours when in fact uh, it was an hour and 24 minutes and we could have even picked the pace up. There was breaks, there was kids running around. Uh, it was a brisk pace, Pat. It was a good game. It was a very successful one because I think we might've planted the seeds for future Catan games rather mm. than you know the world war that can occur that dispels anyone from wanting to play the game again. So I was happy. I don't know threat. if there is a more frustrating game on planet Earth when you aren't getting like... There's a couple of things that happen. First of all, you have, you know, you've got certain, like, gentlemen's rules or gentle people rules that are set on the table. You're like, okay, well, in the first little bit, you don't move the robber onto somebody else's tile. You try and keep the robber even on, either on the island or somewhere else so that oh, it's really? not screwing over other players. Oh, really? That's, that's one of the, 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 that's one of the kind of the, the unwritten rules that I've always played with. Um, and and wow. the people that I play with, I'm playing online with my brother and his fiance and her brother. And uh, so we'll play, and okay. all of a sudden, just randomly one game, like, ah, screw it, the robber's going on your – and they always go after me. I don't know what it is about me, but they always go after me. Um, so I that that bothers me to no end is when the robber's on one of my big tiles. And, and then when you're not getting the rolls and everybody else is getting the roll, it's just like – Ah, it's it's there is not a more frustrating game than when you've got a longest road going and you just need to build that one settlement to solidify it, but you don't get the rolls and then somebody else is able to go in there and build a settlement instead. Um, yeah, I I don't know if there's a thing on the planet that gets me more fired up in a bad way than than Settlers of Catan does. I friggin' hate it and yet I love it. <laughs> 
I, I didn't know the gentlemanly rules because in our house it's like immediately first. You guys swing are right cutthroat, like, right for the throat, hey? Right for the aorta. Like, let's go. If we're playing to win, we're playing to win. Um, you know, my dad's an immensely competitive guy. And if we're not even keeping score, like on, over Christmas holidays or whatever, he won't even play. He's like, well, are we competing or are we like killing time? Because if we're not competing, <laughs> I'm not in. So that's the trait that's been passed down to all of us. Uh, there, there's a no, lot of type I've a. never, I have never yeah. picked that up in you before in my life. I know. I never had a chance, Pat. It's my DNA. That's that's my story. I'm sticking to it. <laughs> How was your guys' week? Um, well, I uh, I did get a game of uh, a couple of games of Catan in. I uh, did one of those fancy Zoom chats on Friday night. Um, that uh, you tend to, or I tend to drink a little too much when I do those Zoom chats with friends, and that was again mm. the case on Friday. Uh, I did not need to consume an entire bottle of uh, red all on my own. I, I really didn't. Um, followed by other, like, I really didn't need to. There was no, but what else was I going to do? Um, True. Got some more Ozark in, got some more MCU yes. movies in, and uh, I finally started getting into, not getting into, but finally started to get around to season eight of Homeland, which has just been incredible for the first five episodes that I've seen. So essentially, like, I'm a big Homeland guy. But what happened was my PVR conked out on me, and I like it wasn't record. Like I had the series recording set, and Uh-oh. I didn't even realize. But it didn't record the first five episodes, and then by the time I realized it didn't do it, um, they were five episodes in. So I have everything on my PVR from episode six on, but I had to go online to find the first five episodes, and uh, it is outstanding so far. So got into season eight of Homeland as well. I know Friedman's no. coming up in about twenty minutes' time. He's a big Homeland guy. That show is outstanding. So. Got some runs in, got some housework in, got some walks in, got a couple workouts in, got some TV in. Uh, what about you, Logo? How'd the uh, long weekend go for you? Well, it was pretty good. Uh, I had a similar Saturday night to you, Pat, probably, because I was on house party with a bunch of friends. We were playing games and having a few drinks. So uh, we actually killed like five hours Saturday night together with a, a big go, group of us. It flies by, hey? It really does. I was really surprised. It was really nice. To, we all finished up dinner, and then we all hopped on together, and it was uh, a really good way to kill some time there. And then uh, did manage to have an Easter dinner with the uh, with the parents yesterday, so that was nice to uh, to just have that. So it was, uh, it was, you know, there's only so much you can do now, but uh, the house party on uh, – online playing some games saturday night was a really fun time to kill like i mean you said time just flew by and all of a sudden it was like 11 o'clock and it was like okay well yeah now are you a good night are are you able to play games on house party on the apple application like on the macbook application i haven't been able to figure out how to play games yet uh i've we've only done it through the phone i'm not sure if anyone was on their laptop when we were doing it or not i'm sure you could you can get house party on your mac as well so like i've got it on my laptop as well i just haven't used it yet right gotcha um, no, that, that makes sense and uh just to circle back patty homeland season eight is set where because i've i've seen so many of these ones i don't remember there was so, the germany season then there's the season in washington after germany where would that put me at like six or seven 
So the season after Germany is season six. That's back in Washington. Okay. Uh, season yeah. seven is set in the United States, and this one is set in Pakistan and Afghanistan. Uh, so okay. they're back to their roots in the final season. Yeah. So, yeah, season wow. eight set in Pakistan, Afghanistan. I'm not going to give away any spoilers to other seasons Good. Uh, because you. I have no idea where people are. But, yeah, season seven is set in, uh, in both the United States and in Russia. Season six is back in Washington. Washington season five was set all in Berlin. I really liked season five. That was a, a really cool year. Um, but yeah, mm-hmm. it's uh, it is outstanding. Some of the twists and turns and Saul's money and Carrie's money and Max is back to be like it, it, it's it's a really good. I, I binged five episodes in three days. So um, I'm looking forward to now being able to watch them on my PVR. So Homeland uh, was was really good stuff as well. Um, well, I'm glad that we had fairly productive long weekends welcome to the program here's what's coming up on pinder and steinberg on this monday afternoon elliot friedman's going to join us at 2 30 today ryan pike from flamesnation.ca stops by at three those are our two guests today we are going to redraft for the first time uh, an NHL entry draft, uh, and at this time they were called entry drafts. They don't call them that anymore, but the 1998 NHL entry draft is where we're going to start. And, and just taking a look back, and, you know, who should have gone number one overall that year? I'll tell you who did go number one overall in 98, Vinny LeCavalier. Should he have gone number one? Should somebody else have gone number one? We'll do that at 4 o'clock, and I hear that Pinder's got another edition of People Ask Pat uh, in the 4 o'clock hour as well, which uh, is always um, rather interesting. So all that coming up before 5 o'clock. Uh, we're done at 5 o'clock um, because we've got a pretty full slate of action for you on the radio tonight. 5 yeah. o'clock, uh, we're going to hear In Conversation with Ron McLean once again. That runs about 20 minutes, half an hour. Immediately following that, we've got pregame coverage for you of Game 1 of the 2015 American League Divisional Series between the Toronto Blue Jays and the Texas Rangers. Game 1 of that series goes tonight at at 6 o'clock and immediately following that we go from game 1 of the 2015 American League Divisional Series right into game 1 of the 2004 Stanley Cup Final between the Calgary Flames and the Tampa Bay Lightning and I know for Flames fans that game 7 is a stinger game 6 is a stinger but go back and, and even though the series doesn't go the way that we all wanted it to here in Calgary let's go back and, and listen to some of the names and some of the performances some of like Jerome McGinley's performance in, in, in game game two was outstanding and Oleg Saprikin's game five overtime winner there were some really cool moments in that seven game set against the Tampa Bay Lightning so we got a pretty jam-packed slate for you uh between now and until about 10 o'clock this evening Mr. Pinder yeah and it's a theme that will continue throughout the week that 2015 baseball series was the first postseason baseball for Blue Jays fans since 1993 and it felt like there was a new generation of Blue Jays fans that I don't want to say we're born because the the lead into the playoffs certainly had, uh, I guess, you know, reinvigorated the fan base and brought people in that had never seen a really good baseball team before. But uh, that that was uh, the christening for a generation of Blue Jays fans to to really get into playoff baseball. And it certainly didn't disappoint with the, the incredibly climactic game five with that dramatic seventh inning that was the wildest 45 minutes maybe in baseball history. And... Uh, I, I'm really looking forward to this one. I've got the PVR already locked in for tonight to make sure I don't miss that and that I can keep it long term. And it was it's just a reminder, like how long it had been, how how tough that division, the AL East, had been 
for Blue Jays fans. And then finally playoff baseball was here, but it really didn't go the way fans thought, especially early after, you know, the incredible run that they had. They win 11 in a row after they pick up Tulowitzki. They go add David Price, who was phenomenal down the stretch. They come into the playoffs as heavy favorites, but it didn't go so great right out of the gate at home. So uh, this is a fun series. And obviously, 0-4 Stanley Cup final. I remember I was working in Toronto at the score and the Hockey Hall of Fame. So I was interning at the score and then picking up hours at the hall so that every day I would commute in from my aunt's house and work at one or the other or both. And I remember game nights when uh, working at the score as an intern when the Flames were playing in that Stanley Cup final. I just I started switching shifts. I couldn't do it. Sit there and uh, on my hands. It was it was too exciting. And uh, I remember exactly where I was for for half that series for sure. The as as the games got yeah. bigger and bigger, six and seven. Uh, a frustrated young man walked about uh, five miles home one night after a result that wasn't so positive and uh, was not a really happy guy for a while. I've got a, a trivia question for you if you're interested. Uh, do you know who the highest paid running back in the NFL is? Um, Todd Gurley would be my guess, but I'm probably wrong. I believe that was accurate uh, up until about was, yeah. five minutes ago uh, because okay. we have a new highest paid running back in the NFL, Adam Schefter of ESPN, breaking the story that Carolina's Christian McCaffrey has signed a four-year Ooh. extension with the Carolina Panthers, averaging wow. $16 million per year. That makes him the highest paid running back in NFL history. So Christian McCaffrey, yeah. who everything – is going like he's going great guns right now. He is uh, dating former Miss Universe Olivia Culpo. He is oh, the best running back in the NFL. He's coming off an outstanding year there, and now he's a $16 million richer. It's uh, been a good little run for Christian McCaffrey of the Carolina Panthers. Miss Universe, huh? Okay. Yeah, she's a lovely looking lady. That's uh, good for Mr. McCaffrey. Also, good I'm not you, sure son. Gurley would qualify anymore after he got released and then signed with Atlanta. Yeah, that's, that's a fair point. Uh, I think that that at, when you know he what? What, when he did sign, he was the highest paid. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he was the highest paid running back in the NFL. And and anytime we talk about NFL contracts, it's okay. So there's a lot of numbers involved in the sense that okay, for other sports, here's your contract, that's what you make. In the NFL, it's never that. It's like, well, here's the full deal, here's the guaranteed money, and here's the likely point in which player gets cut, and then what's the AAV? And so it's it's a little more complex than just highest paid. But in terms of uh, a high bar, high watermark for salary. McCaffrey is now the lead dog, mm. and rightfully so. According to overthecap.com, which tracks NFL salaries, he beats Zeke Elliott, uh, who was at $15 million a year. There you go. And Zeke would have so beaten Gurley, who was signed three 16. years ago, two years ago. Um, yeah. I can't McCaffrey tell when is... Gurley was signed, but it goes Zeke, then Le'Veon Bell at 13 Bell. and David Johnson still with a... $13 million oh. in a year salary, which makes sense oh. to trade him for DeAndre Hopkins, right? O'Brien. For sure, absolutely. Wow. I lo- like yeah. I love watching McCaffrey play. That guy that guy is an absolute beast of a human being. Um I I, I love watching him play. Um I, I think that he's one of those guys that is a, a real nice ambassador for the sport. He's affable, he seems friendly, he uh and and he's a really exciting player to watch. And I if you were to ask me right now who's the best running back in the NFL, I don't flinch and tell you that it's Christian McCaffrey. So uh to see him 
as the highest paid running back in the NFL isn't surprising. The, the only thing is, is how many times have we seen, well, that guy's clearly the best running back in the NFL, mm-hmm. only for you to snap your fingers and that guy to fall off the face of the earth. That's the, yep. that's the I guess, curse is the wrong word, but that's kind of the, that's the nature of the beast when you play that position. You can be Sean Alexander and have the best season in NFL history and a year and a half later uh, be completely irrelevant. And we know how yep. things fell off uh, really? rapidly for LaDainian Tomlinson. And um, so Jamal Lewis was running for 2,000 yards and fell off the face of the earth. Now, I think McCaffrey's still really young, so I don't think that he's going to fall off the face of the earth over these next four years. But that position is so punishing that you can never really tell when a guy is about to hit the cliff. Uh, interestingly, what is having the best running back in football do for you? Not much, apparently, for the gambling houses' win total projections for Carolina. The over-under at five and a half is the lowest in the NFL, tied with teams like Cincinnati, who's awful, Jacksonville, who like seemingly back to where they were, and the Washington Redskins. There's not a team with a lower predicted win total than the Panthers. They're in that lower tier with Newton walking and, uh, I, they're a curious team for me. Maybe there's some value there, Pat, or maybe it just reminds us how replaceable running backs are and that that's not where you wisely spend money. I don't know. Well, and the other thing is they're now in a really interesting situation in that division because, you know, they, they go out, they good. get Teddy Bridgewater as their quarterback, but, you know, you've got a New Orleans team that I think we're all expecting the Saints to be a really good team whenever the NFL is, is back up and running. Tampa Bay's got Tom Brady. Uh, so I, and, and, you know, I think Atlanta is a team that looks like he's on the other side of their window. Uh, but they had a really nice kind of final quarter of the season that, that left some people with some optimism about what the Falcons might be next year. So is, is Carolina, Look, I, I love the fact that Brady's in Tampa. I'm a Bucks fan. I still don't know what the hell the Tampa Bay Buccaneers are. I don't know yeah. what they're going to be this year, even with Tom Brady. So, like, to sit here and tell you as a Bucks fan that I think the Bucks are now all of a sudden a division contender, well, no, I don't believe that. I just don't know. Uh, I, do, I still think New Orleans is the best team in the division, and then I don't know. Like, I, I don't see a ton separating Carolina, Tampa, and Atlanta. The only thing the Bucks have is Brady to give them that X factor. But, yeah, I, I, I think that that division, uh, outside of New Orleans is is kind of wide open, so I'm curious to see how that all plays out. But yeah, I, I do think that um, Christian McCaffrey's your best running back in the NFL, and and I uh, I think he's probably the odds-on favorite. Him or or maybe Derrick Henry. Henry would be the odds-on favorites to go number one overall in in next year's fantasy draft season. Yeah, we shall see. I mean, Alvin Kamara didn't really live up to expectations this year, but he's in a dynamic offense as always, and it's 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 not always the truest test of the best running back is for fantasy so much as what offense are you in. But there's no doubt we're yeah. talking about the cream right now. That's for sure. Where where McCaffrey would it'd be tough to see him not go number one after the season he had last year. A couple of things, just to, and and you know, it, it is it it will bring the mood down a little bit. But a couple of things that I, I think we do need to address. Um, I like, I'll be honest. Like, you know, I got a, a couple of happy moments in over the weekend, and there were some nice things. And you know, the the what was it Friday, the one day that was just gorgeous out. Um, yeah. But you know, the 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 news about Colby Cave uh, was an absolute kick in the teeth. Um, to, to hear that is it's funny because we didn't have a whole lot of information early last week. We found out that Colby cave was in an induced coma in a hospital in Toronto and, and we didn't know the situation. And 
there really wasn't a whole lot. And, you know, the, the first time that I really felt my heart sink about the whole thing was when we were talking to Chris Johnston on Thursday. And CJ said that, yeah, th- this sounds like it is very potentially dire in a life-and-death situation. And that was the first time that anybody had really confirmed that to me, not being a, a medical expert. I, I, You know, what we'd been told, I just don't know the severity of these things. And so you hear that from CJ and then a few days later to wake up and find out that, he had passed away at the age of 25 was it was just it's just awful the nhl and the hockey family lost somebody way too young and and what is so unfortunate i my heart goes out to anybody who loses anybody uh, someone important to them at any point but to think about losing a loved one in this current world climate just breaks my heart because you know whether it is a direct result of covid-19 or like colby cave completely and utterly unrelated it, you don't get the same access to your loved ones in hospital because everything's in lockdown and everything's in these, this this hyper state of containment. So, you know, you, you barely even get to go in and, and be with this person in spirit and, and be able to hold their hand as much as you'd like. I, I just, I, I, I my... Uh, my heart broke for the family, the wife, the, the parents, just like an absolutely incredibly horrible situation. Um, and, you know, I think that the, the, the very least we can do is, is offer thoughts and prayers to the cave family. And it just, it, it was, that was, that was a real tough one to swallow when we found out the information on, on Saturday morning. So rest in peace to Colby cave and thoughts and prayers to that family. Cause that's just the absolute worst news. Awful news. A 25-year-old professional athlete that seemingly was just a phenomenal human that no matter where he was, be it Bakersfield or in the NHL, that treated people around him with respect, brought a smile to the rink, people really fond of the human. Uh, that's it, We don't look at people at 25 years of age as professional athletes and say, oh, yeah, they're, they're you know, they're just like, you know, that this is an option, that this could happen, that they're almost immortal to us. These are these are almost demigods, the people that we just say, like, how could someone in such incredible peak physical fitness be, you know, ill enough to suddenly pass? It's, it's scary stuff, but it's, you know, remember the Craig Cunningham situation with, uh, what, the Tucson Roadrunners, Arizona's farm team, I want to say, yeah. what, four years ago? I mean, really, really scary situation. It was a miracle. He survived, and they had to amputate a part of his leg, if I'm correct. And, you know, he, he did, still yeah. had battery of, of surgeries and tests that followed that, that, you know, surviving it, it wasn't like, okay, now I'm back to normal. Like he, he's a very different human lives, a very leads a very different life. And clearly playing the sport is off the table uh, for him professionally beyond that. But, but just a miracle to stay alive. And you're thinking, how can someone in such incredible shape, how can that happen? But uh, it just is a reminder to us that life is fragile. And even for the people that we place on a pedestal because they're really good at sport, uh, they, they it, life is precious for them too. That's, that's a horrendous, horrendous thing to happen to lose someone that young and seemingly in the peak of, of, um, you know, their, of achieving their dreams, which is to be a pro athlete. That's sad stuff. And the uh, Calgary flames lost a member of their family over the weekend as well. Long time Calgary flames scout uh, Tom Webster passed away at the age of 71. Um, so that, uh, that 
that news came out over the weekend. Here's a quote from GM Brad Living on Tom Webster, longtime Flame Scout. It says, quote, Webby was one of the best hockey men that our game has ever seen, and I'm honored to have known him. But more importantly, Webby was even a better man. The intensity and energy that he exhibited for our game were matched by his compassion for all those he encountered in everyday life. Taught us all so much. We honor him by living our lives with the same qualities that he brought to hockey and life every day. Our sincere condolences go out to his family. So, look, it's been a uh, it's been a lot of bad news for a lot of 2020 to this point. March, there wasn't a lot of good news. April, there hasn't been a ton of good news. I, I know the optimism levels and the positivity levels are, are waning right now. We don't know what the future of professional sports or sports period looks like in North America or around the world. But, uh, yeah, it was just, uh, for whatever reason, this this weekend seemed a little harder to swallow, right? It was just one of those really, uh, yeah, yeah, had uh, a lot of, you know, unfortunate news outside of coronavirus with, with some people passing away. And we know that the news continues to be pretty dire on the COVID-19 front. It was just, it was a long weekend, but it was, at least for me personally, it was a, a long weekend that just felt like there was a lot of negativity around it. So I'm hoping that a new week uh, brings a little bit more brightness, that's for sure. Well, and I think it's just a, you know, Mondays seem to be the hardest. Uh, maybe it's just me, but it's just a reminder that, you know, we still don't have a real finish line in sight. We don't know that, uh, okay, if we just get to date X, then everything will be back to normal. We don't know if, if normal will ever be what we've considered normal or if it's something totally different. The longer it goes, the more it looks like what we thought is normal might not be returning. Like there, there might be a society that comes back where you just don't shake hands. And like that's something as simple as that. But, you know, the, you know, we, and in pro sports, like, we're talking about ramming tens of thousands of people into single buildings. That's, that's going to be a very, very, very difficult thing to bring back until this virus is beaten or gone because where else in society are people packed in more concentrated spaces than as fans watching pro sports. It's uh it's not a good outlook if you're wanting to attend pro sports. Now, we don't know what's going to happen next week. We don't know how far away a vaccine is. We don't know if we can beat this thing another way, but it's just hard to imagine attending a sporting event in the near future now because of, uh, you know, just how sitting in stands, the nature of it. Mm. And that's, uh, that's tough given that if you're listening to the station or you're working at the station or you like to jump on the station, you're probably a really big sports fan or you really enjoy sports. And it's, it's tough to see, uh, the normal sports world back in the short term doesn't mean it's not possible it's just maybe it's as you said just the outlook of the weekend but it feels very murky and foggy at the moment i'm doing my best to stay optimistic on it because it's the only thing i've you know it's it's not the only thing but it's it's one of the things that that keeps me going um because look i'm i'm i i if if i don't stay optimistic the other things that creep into your head about what it could mean, and not just for me personally, but for my colleagues at this radio station and at our all sports radio network, like I don't like to think about the worst case scenarios because it's scary. That's why that's why I bristle when I whenever I hear why don't they just cancel the NHL season already or stop having hope. Well, you know what? For a lot of people, that hope is is kind of important with the realization that yeah, there there's a realistic possibility that it might not come back. Doesn't mean that we just have to. That doesn't mean you can go about it however you want. But for me, 
to resign myself to the fact that it's going to be canceled, that does nothing for me. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm choosing or trying as best I can to keep the optimism level high. Let's take a break, come back. We'll get the latest on that and a whole lot more with the one and only Elliot Friedman. Our NHL insider joins us Mondays and Friedge is coming up next. Happy Monday. It's Pinder and Steinberg on Sportsnet 960 The Fan. Sportsnet 960 The Fan. This is Pinder and Steinberg. Time to hear from our NHL insider, Elliot Friedman. Elliot Friedman, brought to you by Calgary Lock and Safe. As an essential service, Calgary Lock and Safe has a duty to protect the public. During this pandemic, they will continue to provide essential break-in service in the safest manner. Visit calgarylockandsafe.com. Elliot, good Monday to you. We, uh, we found you at this time last week on a bike ride. We hope you're well. How are things in Toronto? Uh, things are pretty good. No complaints. Like, you know, as you know, guys, the, the biggest question is, are you, are you healthy? And if you're dealing with a little bit of boredom, you can deal with that. And so we're healthy. And uh, my wife's sister, my sister-in-law, just dropped off a 32,000-piece puzzle at our house. Pardon me? 32,000? Yes. And I told my wife, I will see you in September. <laughs> oh dear i don't like that you're invested until september elliot that's uh maybe not the best tea leaves to be reading here <laughs> no i mean like you just have to be prepared for stuff right uh, as you guys know me i try to be an optimist and um i'm no drew dowdy i was on that conference call today um but i am one of those people who believes until we're told we're not gonna play we're gonna play and uh, I might be wrong, I might be right, but it's the only way I choose to live. Okay, and, and good. Like uh, Patty was just talking about it the other side of the break. I mean, there's no bonus points for doom and gloom, but to stay positive, that's something to believe in. That's good. So yeah. right on. Now give, give us Dowdy's perspective because you referenced it. I was going to go there. Tell us about the context of the call and what he had to say. Well, I mean, it was a really good conference call. They, they actually, the NHL had two uh, really good – there were two really good media events going on at the same time. The NHL had one with uh, Patrick Kane and uh, Mark Shifley and Matthew Barzal, and they were really good. And then the Kings had a conference call with Drew Doughty, and I was kind of listening to both at once. And uh, Doughty, you know, Doughty was asked about the year, and he said, you know, quite honestly, I don't see us playing again. And, um, you know, you don't expect anything different from Drew, aside from the most honest opinion. And uh, thank goodness for that, because I really like listening to him. And, uh, you know, he just said, I, I, don't, I don't see us playing. And some of that might just be because, you know, the Kings wouldn't be in the playoffs. I don't know how much of it. Like, I know they want to have some regular season games if they can it might just be too much of a long shot. It might not be uh, realistic. So, I mean, what can you do? So I, I, that was his opinion. I know there's people who share it. I'm not sure if anyone's so public about it, but I've talked to you guys. I think this is the pessimistic time. Our minds are racing. We're trapped in our houses. I mean, you guys basically have the same rules in Calgary that we do in Toronto. Nothing major until June 30th at the least. I think it's even though we know that we have to uh, mentally uh, commit ourselves to 10 more weeks, basically, in our homes, I, I think it's easy to have negative thoughts and dark thoughts. And uh, that's why I, I understand why some people feel that way. 
Yeah, fair enough. What's the best case scenario? Like, paint us a picture that that that's very optimistic and positive because we we're just talking about it on the other side of the break. I mean, you might not find in society people more tightly packed than watching pro sports at sports venues. Well, I, I just think that if we play this summer, Ryan, I, I think we all have to be expected it's going to be without fans. You know, I was just talking to someone, uh, uh, you know, a player agent, and, and he was telling me about how, you know, you think of your life. You, you know, how is he going to feel about getting on a plane to go visit clients? How is he going to feel about staying at a hotel? Whether you stay at five-star hotels or you stay at, three-star hotels or you say it like a motor in or something like that you know how are you going to feel about that and then it comes to what you just mentioned and, and how are you going to feel about um playing uh going to sit in, in an arena with twenty thousand people in tight quarters you know everybody's going to feel differently and i think but i think everybody realizes that you know that's not going to be happening for some time and to be honest you know like to me you know, we're talking about a vaccine. Was it going to be a year? Is it going to be 18 months? I just don't see, and I know now, people. It's, it's the world's number one priority, and you hope somehow it can happen as fast as it possibly can uh, simply because everybody around the world is working on this. But I just don't know how you're going to be able to say to people, life is not going to resume for 12 to 18 months. I just, I, like, and I'm not a doctor and I'm not trying to say anything controversial. I just look at it as a human being. And I think that's, that's very difficult, but you know, whatever the case of it's mass testing or whatever it's going to be, that's going to get us to the next phase. It's not going to happen uh, by this summer. So I just don't think that you can expect if we do resume games that you're going to have fans in them. And I think anybody who says, Oh, this is the time when people are going to feel comfortable or this is the time when fans are going to be uh, back beyond saying it's whenever a vaccine comes. I, I think we're all guessing. There seems to be a, in some of the, the, the I guess, uh, projected scenarios out there, a really close link between universal testing and then getting leagues up and running, even without fans, in the sense that they need to have controlled environments. Are you seeing those two things connected as yes, well? Yes, I, I do believe, Ryan, that is true. I think testing will mass testing. I do believe is going to be key in the next phase. I can't give you a timeline on that. You know, the only thing I can say is I really believe these leagues are going to try to play until they're explicitly told, no, they can't play. And, and that's kind of the rule I go with. Like, you know, the commissioner was on CNN this afternoon with Anderson Cooper, and he's basically said, you know, it's not their decision to come back. Like they're at the mercy of, of other decisions, right? Other people with more say. And I think that's the right answer. But until you're told no, um, you know, you're not going to give up. You're going to say, okay, what is this scenario? What is this scenario? What is this scenario? What is this scenario? And I think that's exactly what's going to happen. I think, I think they're going to make plans based on we're hoping we're coming back. And until we're told no, um, we're not coming back. We are, we are going to come back. And, uh, I do think mass testing is critical. Um, but I think the other thing, you know, from Hawks' point of view is there's players overseas. You know, mm-hmm. how is that going to work? Are you going to have to – I was saying in Toronto, I was on last hour, a buddy of mine who's a doctor was saying to me, so if you're in the NHL and you've got players in Europe or anywhere, really, are you going to say 14 days from now, you know, you're going to be traveling – 
So you got to quarantine yourself again. And if you haven't been quarantining already, and then when you come back before you can even go to a training camp, you've got to quarantine for 14 more days. Like, how's it all going to work? And I don't know the answer to those questions, but that's a buddy of mine who's a doctor who was answering that. Elliot Friedman, our NHL insider, joins us Mondays here on Pinder and Steinberg. Elliot, still kind of your feel that we probably won't know anything in terms of an NHL timeline. What did you say? Was it was it May or June in terms of when we might actually even know what a timeline might look like here? No, I, I, I don't think so. I think it all comes down to, you know, when they know that they, when or if they know they can do a playoff. You know, I'll, I'll tell you one thing. I, I did have someone tell me this week that they were wondering, like, let's just say the playoffs go into September, right? Um, Can you have a draft after Labor Day? Because that's when the junior teams, in theory, are going to start showing up again, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, for example, let's just say you're – you know, you're a junior team. You've got Lafreniere or Byfield or Drysdale or Perfetti or one of these talented young guys. Um, you know, like, are you going to know or are you going to have that guy? And so that's what he was wondering strictly from uh, a league position. I mean, we all know the calendar is going to get pushed back. We know that they're going to need some time. Uh, in between the end of this season, whenever that is, if they play it, and the beginning of next season, probably three weeks to a month. Uh, we know the commissioner said today on Anderson Cooper that they need a three-week uh, training camp at least before we play anything this year. I mean, I got to tell you, I don't, I, I don't know if I have a lot at, at this point in time as we talk. Right. Have you... Because, you know, we, we talk with you once a week, and CJ's on with us a couple times a week, and it seems like, depending on the day, the, the the feel from the NHL or the optimism level from the NHL is is one that's probably much like us and ever-changing and kind of a moving target. But do you do you get a sense as to where the NHL is right now in terms of a, an optimism level, a pessimism level of, of being able to get this thing restarted? I think that changes on a daily basis. I did have one, one guy tell me that, you know, if he wasn't on the, there, I guess there was a board of governors call last week and he wasn't on the call. And he told me after, you know, he was briefed by the people in his organization, uh, he was not very optimistic. And then, you know, as the week progressed again, he heard different things and he was more optimistic. Mm-hmm. I, I honestly, I, I think Pat, they're like us. I think it changes every day. Like we have no idea, and we won't have an idea probably until the summer. Yeah, yeah, it's very true. Um, I'll switch gears on you from that to uh, the the really awful news over the weekend about the passing of Colby Cave. Just what what do we? I mean, first of all, a thought on on how awful this must have been for the family and and knowing that, you know, losing a loved one in the current world situation is probably even more difficult than usual because you just don't get the same access to people in hospital. Just a a thought on the passing of Colby Cave over the weekend. Well, I think that's, you know, very, very true. Um, I I think that's very true. Um, 
You know, I mean, the whole situation is just sad and it's brutal. Um, he's a young man. He's got so much of his life ahead of him. Um, and I think that is true, too, is that because of the circumstances that happened with the whole coronavirus, it affects, you know, can the family see him, um, things like that. It's very limited in scope in terms of, you know, what you can do and who you can see in hospital. And I think it also, you know, like it affects things like decisions to even go to a hospital. It's, it's mm-hmm. so hard. It's so hard, Pat. And, you know, I, I think that I, when we first heard about it, I think we were all surprised. Um, you know, the, I, I, there were some people that were saying that they were hoping, you know, it would be like, would it be a battle? Would it, would it be something over time that, you know, some kind of, you know, you're hoping that, you know, a young, healthy person that somehow his, his body can make some sort of recovery that can at least give you something to hold on to. And it, it obviously never happened. I mean, I remember when, when he was claimed off waivers from Edmonton, from Boston by Edmonton, you know, I, I didn't know a lot about him. And, you know, I remember, I think it was Peter Shirelli who told me that he was a guy you just wanted in your organization. He said, you know, we hadn't had a lot of winning in Edmonton. Um, you, want, you want to build a positive culture, and that's the guy that you kind of want to be part of that. Whether he's in the NHL or he's in the AHL, he was a guy who beat a lot of odds, and you wanted that in your group. He was a really positive guy. And I know Keith Gretzky was a guy who had a lot to do with with having him in Boston. He was in Edmonton at the time, too. And he was like the same thing. He's like just a positive guy you want around your group. And I don't know if you saw that tweet that the Bakersfield Condors put out with um, with him signing that uh, young child's uh, jersey and saying, I'll, I'll put it here so you, um, so you won't forget me. I mean, it's so heartbreaking, but it was so mm-hmm. him. And um, I don't know, it, it just, I don't think I'm saying anything that's really surprising or news to anyone. It's just, it's, it's so brutal and it's so bad. And I, I, I really, my heart really goes to all the families that are battling things, whether it's COVID or non-COVID. And you just can't see each other. You can't be with each other. It just adds another level of pain and unfairness to this whole situation. Yeah, well said. Do you- do you um like it, it and it kind of just came as such a shock like was was yeah. anybody was anybody aware that this might be a risk at the time or did it come as a shock to everyone involved from what you understand no i i, I think that it was i think it was a total shock i don't think anybody had anything that they kind of knew about it um you know um i i just heard it kind of it kind of came out of nowhere um, as far as I know, and I could be wrong, I really haven't pressed anybody about it. Of course. I didn't hear that there was anything that there was uh, a condition um, that led to this, as far as I know. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I guess from, um, I, I guess in terms of 
what you uh, what you have just said about the young man, like that, that seems to be what everybody's talking about is that he's uh, like he was universally loved by teammates and and coaches loved to have him. Like it just you know, and and you hear a lot of these things when when tragedies happen, but it sure does feel like this was uh, this is a guy that that truly was universally loved by by his team. Yes, he was. There's there's no question about that. He was a he was a really popular teammate. And and like I said, I think that, um, you know, he was a guy you wanted in your organization because he was upbeat and he was positive. And that's why Edmonton went out to get him. I remember Peter Shirelli telling me that. He said, you know, first of all, I think he's a good depth player. But secondly, I think he's he's going to be good for a lot of people we have here. And, mm-hmm. you know, that Boston room where he came from, you guys know about that group. Like, they are... There are a lot of really mature, smart, uh, bright people in that organization among that team who uh, lead and carry themselves in unbelievable ways. And uh, he was a fit in that group for sure. Uh, with Elliot Friedman, what can you uh, what can you tell us about the uh, Ask Thirty One Thoughts podcast? You just did one with Austin Matthews. You've had a couple uh, of other players on. Tell us about the latest on the podcast. Seems like you're doing some good work. Well, well, that we'll leave that up to the viewers to decide, Pat. Um, <laughs> you know, this week I think it's uh, J- we're, we're doing St. It's St. Louis Blues goalie week. It's Jake Allen and who's tomorrow, and I believe it's uh, Jordan Bennington who's on Thursday. And uh, we're looking at some other guys. And you know, I mean, at this point in time, we're all just trying to talk to people, right? And um, you know, it's, like the thing I, I look at it, guys, is that. Um, you know, I, I'm, I took the week off 31 Thoughts last week because I'm working on an, on an oral history of something, but I'm, I'm getting back to doing it this week. And, look, I, I'm far from essential. I recognize that. I, I don't even think I'm essential in my own home. But if we can, you know, just give people something else to think about and entertain them, you know, we got to do that. So we're doing Tuesdays and Thursdays, and we're also putting out our regular podcast tomorrow. And uh, well, we're taping it tomorrow. We're going to put it out Wednesday. We had a Brooks-like one today. Hey, anything we can do to entertain people, we're going to try because we're, uh, we're all in this together, Pat, even you, me, and Ryan. And we know how selfish teammates the three of us are. We're all in this together. <laughs> any, uh, well, you, any, you're hiding ahead, projects Ryan. on us. So a peak of selfish, Elliot. You're, you're teasing of what's this unnamed project, this oral history no, no, of what? I, Come I, on I, now. I don't like to give it away. I really don't. So – uh, I'm working on a big oral history of something that's coming out on Sunday, I think. Okay. Uh, Ooh, okay, we'll keep an eye for that. Any uh, any takeaways? You guys from... will hate it. I'll tell you that much right now. <laughs> something to do with the Oilers, I'm sure. Any, uh, he says he's positive. I don't know what this is. He's, then he says stuff <laughs> like that. Anything from those uh, from some of the chats you've had, Austin Matthews or Aaron Ekblad, or anything that jumps off the page to you that, that's been really interesting? I, I really enjoyed Ekblad's uh, dog barking in the whole thing. I thought it was uh, it was really good. The dog wanted to go out. Ekblad was uh, was really good. And he, these guys are really good. And uh, Matthews, the the thing about Matthews is like uh, he's a big Tiger King guy, like a lot of these guys are. Someone had asked uh, Trump about a presidential pardon the day before, so I asked if he felt that Joe Exotic should be pardoned, and then he said he wanted. Then I asked he would want to bring him to a Leaf game, and uh, I got to tell you, I like that. Like just that. I hope that's a Sportsnet broadcast. Number one, <laughs> and, you know the other thing Matthews talked about was really good was 
he doesn't like to talk a lot about um, individual stuff, really. But he was really good talking about he had, like the goals record in Toronto was 54, Rick Vive, and he was on pace to get 55. And you know, he did admit he would have liked the opportunity to go for. It, and he talked a little bit about how he'd gotten to know Vive, and um, I, I did like that. I thought that was. You know, like the the one thing now is, and you guys can tell me if you think I'm nuts, but um, sometimes I think we like there's nothing wrong with wanting to do to to get an individual goal, as long as you're like a team guy. And you know, sometimes I think guys are afraid to admit they want to get like an individual goal because they'll be mm-hmm. labeled as selfish. And you know, I think he his guard was up a bit about that while play was going on. But I don't see a single problem with coming out and saying, you know what, I would have loved to have gotten that record. I don't see a That feels like a hockey culture thing to me. Yeah, like could guys be. are very For always sure. very concerned about the perception of selfishness, even if they know they're not. It's mm-hmm. always team first, always team. Ask them a question about individual. Oh, well, the team stuff's important, maybe the end of my career, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's how it affects me. Last one for you. Can you help me encourage Pat to get a dog? I think he needs a a uh, isolation pet yeah why not well seriously here's the only the only thing the only bad we're we're debating getting a dog too pat we've talked (laughs) about it a lot we think our our little guy would like it the problem is with my schedule um it would mean my uh my wife would have to do most of it and like there'll be nights where we finish hockey night where we finish hockey night like 1 a.m on saturday mornings Mm eastern And, uh, you know, Rudy and I would like to go get a glass of wine, you know, wine after the show just to have one. And David Amber can never come because he's like, oh, I got to go home and walk the dog. And (laughs) that is the only negative. Other than that, dogs are fantastic. Um, I'm I'm a dog person over a cat person, a hundred times out of a hundred. But the only problem is, is that they run your life. But other than that, <laughs> dogs are fantastic. So as long as you are prepared and go into it positively, you will have a great time. I would recommend it. I had See, a dog a... when we were a kid. It was basically Cujo Jr. I've, I've <laughs> missed dogs since then. I... I'm a staunch dog person too. I had dog. Uh, I had I had uh, two family dogs growing up. Like it, like I'm a big time dog person. My problem is, I've got the similar issue with you and your schedule in terms of my hours and stuff like that. But I also live alone, so it would be fine during a pandemic. As soon as we're out of this, and as soon as we get hockey back, and I'm back to work in 17 hour days, well then that dog's gonna die. And so I, I feel like it would be cruel to <laughs> to get a dog. I just feel like that would be cruel and unusual punishment so that's what is keeping me from doing it uh i i think that's very fair and very honest and very reasonable you only have one solution to this start bringing the dog to the games <laughs> love it that love is it. a good solution be uh he'd be a better better host than i would be by the way by the way i, I uh i see it could call it could call just as good play-by-play as willis <laughs> yes. i bet it bet it will uh I, we'll, we'll make sure that we tell them that what uh i i gotta say you've been talking about homeland season eight i uh yeah. i finally i finally started watching season eight uh best season yet i'm five episodes it's, in it's, it's, I it's unreal episodes so don't tell me um but it, it's like homeland it started great it dipped and now it's it's back up 
I, I, it's dynamite this year. It's, it's really good, Pat. Good for yeah. you. I'm loving it. I'm loving it so far. All right, Elliot. Thanks for doing this as yeah, always. We're looking at right now the unveiling of the 32,000-piece puzzle. <laughs> oh, dear. That is so huge. you got to put a picture of that on Twitter. We will when it's, when it's done. Okay. So, so in September. The picture will be up in next July, July 2021. <laughs> oh, man, that's crazy. See you, Elliot. All right, guys. Take care. Elliot Friedman, brought to you by Calgary Lock and Safe. As an essential service, Calgary Lock and Safe has a duty to protect the public. During this pandemic, they will continue to provide essential break-in service in the safest manner. Visit calgarylockandsafe.com. Pat, my sister is working on a 3,000-piece puzzle, and it's the size of a dining room table. She has done the border and some small parts, and there is Mm -hmm. still a massive box full of tiny puzzle pieces 32,000 is that's that's like an acre that's insane I uh like I've got nothing against puzzles but even in a pandemic when I have got nothing else to do I don't have the attention span to be able to finish a puzzle I just don't and that's uh, I I just I've never been able to do it um and I don't even think being in a pandemic I'll be like I see boom is doing puzzles like on a daily basis and good on yes, him I just I I don't I don't think I could ever do them like I I lose focus so quickly on things like that uh, you need some legal narcotics, a good old album, and some wine, and that might be the key. We'll see if we can get you moving on that front in the next few weeks. Uh, all right, let's take a break. When we come back, we'll catch up with Ryan Pike of FlamesNation.ca a little bit later on this uh, this program in the 3 o'clock hour. We'll do a little wild card Wednesday, and just after 4 o'clock, our first NHL redraft going back to the 1998 NHL draft. It's a pandemic edition of Pinder and Steinberg on Sportsnet 960, The Fan. Calgary guys talking Calgary sports. Pinder and Steinberg are only on Sportsnet 960, The Fan. Say hello to our good buddy Ryan Pike from FlamesNation.ca on the Atlas Pizza and Sports Bar guest hotline. Hello, Mr. Pike. What is happening at Flames Nation? What are, uh, how, how has the grind been pumping out content for the last couple of weeks? Uh, it hasn't actually been too, too bad. I mean, we've, you know, there's been some news here and there with the college signings last week and, uh, you know, the, the fact that the Flames were nice enough to organize that, uh, that chat with all of us with, uh, with Brad for living. So we are able to get some juice out of that. But, uh, for the most part, you know, looking at some history stuff, we've been doing a lot of, uh, CBA stuff because, you know, no time better than the present to sort of dig into the CBA, especially considering that, you know, uh, some of the there's some things that will probably need to be flexible uh, if slash when hockey gets back going again. So it hasn't been terrible. It's actually been better than I thought it would be. Well, more on the the CBA stuff in just a second. But I think the most important thing is uh, you're doing what I'm doing and rewatching all 23 of the Marvel Cinematic Universe films. But you're doing it. You're doing it in this wacky witchcraft way where you're doing it in chronological order and not doing it the way the movies were put out. And I just I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around the order that you're watching them in because you you are watching them in chronological order. Are you not? Yes. uh, One one of uh, the Flames marketing people, uh, you know, is sort of they did the same thing uh, earlier in uh, in the quarantine. And I'm like, 
ooh, the more I think about it, the more this kind of makes sense because, you know, it's much like anything else where, you know, if this, the release order for the Star Wars movies, you know, is the way we were introduced to this to those stories, but it doesn't tell a coherent story unless you watch it beginning to end. And I think especially now that all the movies are out, you, you know, might, might as well do something uh, weird with my time and uh, see if the story is a bit coherent when we watch them you know, chronologically. So, so far, so good. It's been, I'm honestly kind of impressed by how well some of these movies that came out like, you know, eight or nine years ago still hold up. Well, and I've seen like First Avengers still really good. Thor is still one of my favorites of the group. Um, I, I still think the original Avengers holds up pretty well. I just I have a tough time watching Captain Marvel as the second movie. It's, it's 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 tough to wrap my head around that. I know chronologically that was set in the 1990s, but I also know there's a massive uh, there's a massive Endgame cutscene. So what the how if you if you were showing somebody the Marvel Cinematic Universe and you were making Making them watch Captain Marvel second, and they had never seen any of the movies before, their head would explode. Like, who are these people? What is this? What is this axe that this man is holding? Like, uh, it wouldn't make any sense. Well, you, you just don't watch the after credits scene then. Like, it helps if you know it's coming and you don't want to pull yourself out of the story. I'm just I'm being contrarian just for the sake of being contrarian. It actually kind of interests me. Um, what uh, we got Ryan Pike with us from FlamesNation.ca. What uh, so tell us about you're kind of doing CBA school. Uh, you're what, like part 13 of CBA school or something like that on FlamesNation.ca. So what are you doing? What are some of the things that you're looking at? Well, it's effectively, I'm just sort of going through. You know, I did it. I did this. Honestly, I did this when I thought there'd be a lockout. Let's be honest here. Uh, I went through the CBA and just sort of any kind of articles or any kind of sections that I thought, okay, it's probably worthwhile explaining this, I kind of flagged. So I, I honestly do have a list of about uh, – the CBA, let's be blunt, it's about 500 pages long, and there's no way in hell anyone ever needs to or should read 500 pages of anything, especially the CBA. So much like, say, you know – Spark Notes, for example, or you know any of the the many uh, fine publications that distill down great expectations or you know of mice and men down to a manageable, digestible chunk. I thought, eh, let's try, let's do the same thing for the CBA and try to distill it down to the useful parts and not the hundreds of pages of confusing legalese. Okay, so what what have um... What's jumped out at you? What are some of the things that, uh, that, that you know, you might think that some of our listeners would be interested to go check out? One of the cool things I just I discovered it yesterday, just going through it, and I hadn't really dug into it before. Just the idea of you know when NHL players are entitled to get a permanent place. Uh, you know, for example, like typically speaking, you know, when guys get called up, they stay at a hotel and they stay at a hotel uh, downtown until the team tells them to get the place. And for a while, I thought the the teams had more discretion in terms of telling them, yes, get a place, no, just hold out on that. And there's a thing called the the 2856 rule, where it actually means, you know, uh, if you're up for 28 days, the team is encouraged by the CBA to make a decision on you. If they if they can't make a decision on you after 28 days, like say your presence there is connected to an injury that isn't really clear what's going on with that, then they can say, okay, well, just, you know, don't get a place, stay in the hotel for a bit longer. But if you're up for 56 days on day 57, you can go out and get a place without telling the team and they can't do anything about it. And if you get sent down, the team's on the hook for the money because they had 56 days to tell you to get a place or not. 
So think, little things like that, you know, uh, the, the little things that are sort of ambiguities in the CBA too, like they, most things are tied to a thing called pensionable service or pension. The, the way they, they basically look at NHL seniority is pension plan credit days. So effectively, if you're on the NHL roster, you know, whether you're healthy, you're injured, you're down on a conditioning loan, whatever, as long as you're on the NHL roster one way or the other for a game, you get a pension plan credit. So, for example, like last year, Yusuf Halimaki, actually this year, Yusuf Halimaki was on the, I think he was technically injured non-roster list for the entire season. So Yusuf Halimaki got the entire season's worth of pensionable credits, despite the fact that he played zero minutes because of how he, you know, he made, he qualified the season before. And so he gets basically two years of pensionable service without having to actually play very much. So little things like that, that sort of jump out at you as, huh, that's kind of weird. Mm. I never really thought about that. And you've also kind of been taking a look and, and talking to some of the people that you know and reading some between the lines and, and from other NHL insiders. But what's what's the feeling that you're getting on the salary cap for next year and the salary cap going forward? It, it sure does sound like a flat salary cap sounds like a likely outcome here. Yeah, uh, for, for those of you who uh, had the inclination, I encourage you to check out the Steve Dangle podcast from last week because, uh, you know, our mutual friend Chris Johnson was on there for a couple hours just, you know, chatting. And, Chris, you know, Chris is a fascinating person to talk to because he, he knows so much about the game. And one of the things that came out of that conversation, he dropped it rather casually, is just the idea of, well, the question was asked, what's happening to the salary cap? And, you know, if you're in the hockey business world, exact, you know, their knee-jerk reaction is, oh, God, it better not go down. And the short answer is it's almost definitely not going to go down because that would, you know, blow up the cap structure for pretty much the entire league. But with potentially the league losing hundreds of millions, if not close to a billion dollars in combined revenue, it's going to screw up the cap for a lot of teams if they don't do something. So what, uh, what Chris mentioned was just the idea of it sounds like from the people he's talking to that we're going to have an $81.5 million cap for, I think the, his phrasing was, a few years. So if you look at, at any $81.5 million cap, you know, if we look at straight revenue, you know, a billion dollars lost would involve like $16 million coming off every team's salary cap. That is not happening. There is simply they don't have the ability, even if they put in compliance buyouts to whatever CBA bridge they come up with. You're not mm-hmm. going to lose 16 million dollars from any team's cap. That is ridiculous. So what they probably will end up doing is doing a flat cap for two, three, maybe four years, and then you know the any cap growth that they would have had, they're simply borrowing in advance and using it to stabilize everything. So. What does that mean for the Flames? It means that potentially, you know, they might have had a bit more flexibility in a year or two to figure out what they want to do. Like, say, the year after Seattle comes in, Kudrow, Kachuk, and and, uh, Giordano are all up. All of a sudden, if they have a little bit less wiggle room than they thought, it's going to make things a little bit tight. That said, let's, let's be honest, they were going to have to make some tough decisions regardless. But I think right now, they're not going to have new problems created for them, but I think it's going to make some of their existing problems a little bit more frantic. Mm-hmm. With Ryan Pike of FlamesNation.ca, joins us Mondays here on Pinder and Steinberg. You have been one of the most on top of the 
arena project here in Calgary and, you know, the, the next steps and where we go from here, so on and so forth. But we're also in a pandemic right now. What does the world of a pandemic mean for an arena in the city of Calgary? Uh, right now, it's sort of a lot of pausing. Uh, Scott Dipple over at the CBC talked to uh, the Calgary Municipal Land Corporation about two weeks ago. And if there was no pandemic, the plan was they've already done first interviews for the main architect. I think they, they have a few they like. They have a few they like a little bit more than others. But they have to go through a second interview process in order to give the job to somebody. And they haven't been able to do the second interviews yet because of the pandemic and the, the travel restrictions. So they, as of two weeks ago, they were on a 30-day pause. Um, depending on what happens, I, I can't imagine that uh, they're going to be able to do interviews in the current state. So they might do it remotely. They might do another 30-day pause. Uh, it might cause a little bit of a shift to the timelines, but what will probably end up happening is, you know, the, the construction timelines are still about, you know, a year, year and a half out. So, I think there's a little bit of fat built into the into the timelines for, you know, contingency and, you know, life happens. And I think part of that's going to be eaten up quite a bit by by this whole process. But, you know, I think it's still a priority, you know, with the we've heard folks at City Hall talking about, you know, infrastructure projects being a nice way of getting people employed and active. And, you know, you're going to the economy is not going to be in an amazing state for a little while and spending getting $500 million of construction injected into the economy is, is no small thing. And I think, you know, as long as everyone involved still has the money to do it, I think it'd be a great thing for the community, if only to get people busy. Do you get the sense that this could have a, a significant impact on the actual uh, completion date of the, the potential event center? Well, not the potential, but of the event center? I think maybe, but they... Initially, the, the handover date that they that the that the Kate Thompson at CMLC mentioned to me uh, about a month month and a half ago was May of 2024 because that way they'd have pretty much the entire summer and a busy stampede concert season to work the kinks out. Um, it might eat into that a little bit, but a lot of it depends on the design too because you know the the, the timeline they came up with you know a three year timeline for the build is sort of a back of the napkin let's just come up with something for a guideline thing. And then once they have the, the design and once they have the architect and everything sort of spelled out, then I think the the uh, estimates will be a little bit more real. Okay. And a final thought for you, and that's just on a little bit of sad news from over the weekend from a Flames perspective, and that was the passing of former scout, longtime scout Tom Webster. He passed away at the age of 71. Just just a thought on, on Tom Webster's time as a member of this team's scouting staff, because I know it's something that you follow uh, really, really closely. Tom Webster might low-key be one of the most important play, uh, people in the history of the franchise. I mean, you know, him and Al McNeil are probably the two guys I would point out that don't get the credit they deserve for how instrumental they've been behind the scenes. Uh, Tom Webster in particular, you know, is a guy that, you know, he, he played in the WHA and he was really, really involved in OHL in terms of coaching, in terms of scouting in that league for a while. And then when he, he stopped coaching the, the Windsor Spitfires in 2003 and then became a, a scout for the Flames. And because he was so, you know, hand in glove in the OHL, he was one of those guys that was able to target and really flag some of these great young OHL players. Uh, the 
least of which is a, a lesser-known 20-year-old named Mark Giordano. Uh, the Flames uh, lost the 2004 Stanley Cup final in part because they ran out of human bodies who could play defense for them. Uh, so one of the things that Daryl Sutter did immediately after you know losing out was go to his scouts and say, "Hey, we need some we need some players for our farm team." Talk to your, talk to the pro scouts, talk to the amateur scouts, and they all sort of flex some guys. And the guy that Tom Webster really recommended they bring in was Mark Giordano. And now here we are. Now he's it turns out to be a a very astute pickup because he's turned out to be arguably one of the two or three best players who's ever played. So without Tom Webster. Who knows what would have happened for Giordano, and who knows what would have happened for the Flames. Yeah, no doubt about it, and uh, appreciate that perspective. That's a good way to uh, wrap us up this afternoon. Thank you very much, Mr. Pike. Uh, what do you got planned coming up on FlamesNation.ca? Anything special coming down the pipe right now? Uh, a few things. I'm going to look at uh, some of the guys they, that the Heat signed to AHL contracts last year and see if anyone has really merited a bit of, uh, of a promotion. And today's an anniversary uh the Sportsnet folks actually flagged this on Twitter. Today is the anniversary of uh, Johnny Gaudreau's first game. So for tomorrow, we're going to look at where Johnny Gaudreau, six years into his NHL slash Flames career, where does he stand amongst the best Flames of all time? Good stuff, Pike. We'll talk to you next week. Appreciate it, pal. See you, buddy. That is Ryan Pike from FlamesNation.ca on the Atlas Pizza and Sports Bar guest hotline. The bar may be closed to patrons during these trying times, but they are open for business. Pickup or delivery is available by calling 403-248-3344. That's 403-248-3344. Wild Card Wednesday coming up next. Pinder and Steinberg, Sportsnet 960, The Fan. Let's take a spin and find out all the things we never wanted to know about our afternoon show. It's time for Wild Card Wednesday. Sportsnet 960, The Fan. All right, a Monday edition of everybody's favorite Wednesday game show. Welcome back to the program. we got Pat Steinberg and Ryan Pinder and Logan Gordon around the table with you virtually, and uh, it is time for another edition of Wild Card Wednesday. Coming off of a long weekend, we've got lots to talk about. Pinder wants to get me a dog, so that's his big quest for the next little bit. Uh, lots to get to here on the. Uh, I'm worried on, about you. I'm, I'm doing, worried, pal. I'm doing all right. I don't have. Uh, I, know I don't you're have. Doing fine. Don't have the family to quarantine yeah. with. Like you've got, you've got like yeah. what eight people to to hang out with and like that's and that's good. I'm I'm happy for you. Like I've seen my yes. mom and my dad, and um, so like yeah, it's it's uh, it has not been as um as uh, populated. So but I'm getting out. I'm going for runs and going for walks. So that's been good. I'm doing all right. You don't have to worry about me. Okay, well, I'm worried a little. I know you're doing fine, but uh, I feel like you could be doing better with a little pooch. Man's best friend right beside you. More on that later in the show, though. Let's uh, <laughs> let's walk into the casino where dogs are currently not allowed. No dogs allowed in the Wild Card Wednesday Casino. The uh, air is smoky here in our virtual casino. We've got a big slot machine. It's got five categories, pop culture, personal life, career, sports, and wild card. All three of us give the uh, big slot machine a little pull. It lands on one of those categories, then we ask a question. Uh, Logan, you have uh, taken the mantle as the leadoff man, so here we are on the leadoff day of the week. You've got to go first. All right, fine, I'll do it. Damn right you will. Right there. Don't have a choice. Sports. All right, boys. Um, I can apply this to two different sports, but we were talking some football earlier, and with Christian McCaffrey 
uh, becoming the highest paid running back. I thought it was a good day to pull this question out. Uh, you're a team looking to add a starting quarterback to your roster. Which current NFL backup or free agent would you make your starter today? I'll go first. I want Cam Newton. I think Cam has got a huge chip in his shoulder. He's clearly been battling his body more than poor play over the last two seasons. And if he can get to even 90% of what we came to expect from a healthy Cam Newton, that's a guy that can win you a lot of football games. Uh, I, I think it's Cam Newton. You know, the, the caveat is clearly health, but I think this is a guy that we're going to look back and say, wow, how did, how did everyone give up on this guy so early? Uh, maybe not quite the Drew Brees story when he essentially had two suitors in free agency after being cut by the Chargers of the bum shoulder, but I, I feel like we could have another redemption-type story like that with Newton. Yeesh. I'm trying to rack my brain because Newton was the first guy that came to my mind, too. I'm trying to think who else would even fall into that category of a guy that I say, yes, this is a guy that I absolutely would want to have as my starter. Um because I would have gone Teddy Bridgewater, but Bridgewater is now the starter in Carolina. So Winston's out he... there. Well, and that's who I was going to go with. Because here's what I'll say about Jameis Winston. I'll, he'll be he'll be my recommendation. Jameis Winston will frustrate the hell out of you, and he will have games where he's the worst player on the field. But he'll also have games where he's the best player on the field. And if you can somehow get a coach, whether it be a quarterback's coach, an offensive coordinator, a head coach, uh, an offensive quality control coach, I don't know. But if you can get somebody to get through to Jameis and, and get those mistakes down and get him to get on top of the just absolutely horrid decision-making that plagues him on some afternoons, this guy can be a really good quarterback in this league. The raw talent is there. So I think I'll go Jameis Winston because I think that as frustrating as he is, and boy is he frustrating, there are also an absolute heaps worth of attributes there that you like as a football team. So I'll go Jameis. Um, my pick is from the Indianapolis Colts, uh, Jacoby Brissett. You were going Brissett, hey? Yes. Uh, Phil Rivers Who's signing it? a one-year deal there makes Brissett the uh, – Probably, in my mind, the best backup quarterback uh, available in the league. He seems to always get passed over. He really doesn't seem to get much of a chance for more than a, a year or anything like that. Uh, I think that although you know he only had just under 3,000 passing yards last year, he really hadn't have much of uh, talent around him. T.Y. Hilton was hurt a lot. Uh, he didn't get much of a chance in Indianapolis before they just suddenly went to Rivers all of a sudden on a one-year deal. Maybe he's going to stick around, and if Rivers doesn't work out, he gets back in the the saddle in Indianapolis. But he's just 27 years old. He was in the New England system and then into Indianapolis where you know both teams have had success with quarterbacks. I think if you were looking for a guy who could step in and actually be a decent starter, for me it would be Brissett. I, I don't trust Winston. I'm with Pinder that, that Cam Newton's probably my, my first choice of if I had a, one but Brissett's probably the best guy on a roster, I'd say, right now. I mean, I'll say this. Winston's been better than Newton the last number of years, and that's uh, that's not saying much for Cam Newton. Um, you know, Newton's really struggled, and I health has been a big part of it, but... I, uh, and, and he would he would definitely be... He would probably be number one on my list, but I, uh, I don't know how confident I would be. Like, I like Brissett, 
I think that he is a – there's some, some really nice raw talent there. I just don't know if he's got enough from a refined standpoint to be a really good or even a, a, a full-time starter in this league. I, I'm not as – I just I, – I've yet to become a believer in Jacoby Brissett, but maybe, uh, maybe I just, you know, haven't um, – Maybe maybe I'm not seeing the same things you are, Logo. No, and and in fairness to the question, you know, like if you took free agents out of it and you literally just said backup quarterbacks, there's not a lot of guys in a backup spot that you would want. Mm-hmm. Like, really, is is Andy Dalton anybody's choice to be their next starter? Uh, you want to take a chance on Mitch Trubisky now that they got Nick Foles in Chicago? I don't think so. You know, there's not really a high list of NFL backups or free agents that you would really want, which is probably why Newton and Winston are, are unsigned, right? Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. How about Swiss Army Knife Taysom Hill? There's a wild one. It'd be certainly way out there, but that's I always find that's a curious name to throw around. Well, yeah, when the Saints put a, a high tender on him in uh, free agency, you knew that they, they see something there clearly when they don't want to yeah. hold on to him until – uh, Drew's done, so yeah, that's actually a pretty good one too. If you can mm-hmm. figure out what he is going to be at uh, starter level, okay. All right, um, who's going Patty, next? Go? I can go. Yeah, go, let's do it. Personal life. Ah, personal life. One of the uh, absolute favorites, uh, gentlemen. A little scary. Do you manscape? <laughs> do you manscape? <laughs> Well, of course, Pat. What do you mean? Lots of people who don't. There are plenty of people who don't. And look, manscaping manscaping has it's a very wide there's a very wide swath when talking about manscaping. Um, It could mean it could mean your back, it could mean your shoulders, it could mean your chest, or it could mean the area that most people think of when using that term. But do you groom? body hair i don't have much in the way of the back hair luckily there's a tiny bit of work to be done around there uh so i'm, I'm not the cashmere sweater hair type like pat but uh that doesn't mean that there Steel isn't wool. other areas that can be neglected so uh, the answer is yes pat and uh yes um, yeah i i i like to try go ahead you go you go first logo yeah, I'm. I, I got some chest hair, but I don't do anything with it. I'm with Ryan. I don't have anything on the shoulders or the back, which I'm. I'm pretty thankful for. But yeah, there's a, there's a standard I would say that most gentlemen should uh, attempt attain to. I guess so that should be a, a regular level of um, maintenance in certain areas, and I do uh, abide by those rules. Yeah, I, I like to maintain. Um, I will. Uh... I will say that I uh, the, the the shoulder hair I uh, take uh, the old Mach three two probably about once a week um, and and so that's on the shoulder a little bit on the shoulder blade so you get that a little bit of the upper neck one time like for instance I was mortified I was at uh, Windsport and uh, I was wearing I think I was wearing like a, a Lulu polo or something like that and um, Jermaine Franklin comes up to me and goes Patty you're a beast and I'm like what are you talking about he's like and these points, there's hair popping out of the back. I'm like, oh well, that oh, means I know what I'm doing today. Um, I've got to, uh, I've got to go home and uh, bring that down. So I try to get the the uh, 
upper back, you know, lower neck, shoulders, shoulder blades, I kind of take care of. I can't really hit the rest. There's not a whole lot the rest of the way. Um, I do a little bit of maintenance on the chest, uh, some trimming, and I, what I really try to do is that you don't, anytime I wear a shirt, doesn't matter what type of shirt I wear, I want to make sure that nothing's really visible. So, you know, polo shirt with a button or two undone, you know, I don't want chest hair popping out. Same thing with a dress shirt. Um, yeah, the other area, I try to, you know, keep a very, very, as, as tamed as possible, and then uh, I'm I'm all over the nose hairs and the eyebrow plucking. So I, I I would say that I do a pretty good job of of staying on top of that stuff. I, I try to even during pandemic I have tried to keep on top of that stuff. Pat, it's a weird question, and I'm happy to step in and change the topic right here, right now, with my lucky fifty cent piece. <laughs> Career. Okay, guys. Uh, what's a job you don't want coming out of the pandemic? Because, I mean, I imagine we're Ooh. all going to get uh, fired when we turn into classical music radio in a few months or whatever it is. And what's a job you don't want when the pandemic comes We'll just out? end up being a repeater for 660 News. Let's be perfectly right. honest. Very good. Um, so working at 660 News might be my answer then. But but go ahead, Pat. <laughs> I don't. I don't want that job. Uh, what do I not want coming out of pandemic? Hmm. I don't know if there's anything specific that, I don't know if there's anything specific that I, like, I don't think that it goes back to the question, we we asked the question I think last week, I mean, I don't think I could be a server and especially coming out of pandemic, if, you know, when when everything's open back up and, and when we've got the all clear, I, I, I assume that it's going to be gradual, but at some point we'll have the all clear, all clear, and restaurants will be back being a thing. Uh, I don't know if I, I don't know if I could deal being a server on the best of days, but especially when things are jammed and everybody's back in restaurants before, I don't, I don't think I could do the serving thing. I respect the people who can do it so much because I just know how poorly I do at it and, and how much that I would throw in the towel within about two hours on the job. I'll, I'll take it very literally and say that I wouldn't want to work at a bank or as a financial advisor um, <laughs> because I just feel like that's going to be an absolute nightmare for everybody. I don't even want to know what tax season next year will look like or if you're you know, financial advising for someone with a business or something like that. Uh, I have no interest. I'm terrible at math as it is anyways. My taxes are a yearly struggle. Uh, all these sort of things just are difficult for me, so... Uh, not to mention when you add in all the pain and frustration that this has caused our economy, uh, I will stay as far away from any of that business as uh, possible. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Good call. Hey, let me put Good the money call. in the market for you. But, uh, yeah, that might not be the yeah. best career coming out. Who knows? Um, yeah, and I'll actually I'll say 660 News, Pat. That's not. I'd rather uh, be queuing up the classical hits on uh, Beethoven's 960 than... Uh, than reporting on uh, traffic on the ones together with weather, whatever they say. Into the crush of the rush, we've got a slow go on crow, and it is a no-no on bow. I'm Trace Ventura. (laughs) 
Is that what his name is now? All right. Very good. <laughs> All right, boys. That was just okay. We'll be better tomorrow. That's a wild card Wednesday. A couple of texts before we wrap it up. 960-960. Um, first on the manscaping question. Uh, Pat, did you just say wide swath in reference to manscaping? I did. Yeah, I did. Um oh, Pat, you've been slowly winning me over during all this, but your choice of topic here hasn't helped your cause one bit. Um, I think Fair. that was like, I think that was, first of all, a backhanded compliment followed by uh, an insult. So I'll, I'll take the backhanded compliment. Um, and then this one, Pat shaves his legs. Um, actually, I don't. There's just no hair on my legs. Mm. It's very bizarre. Like, the, the legs are that is bizarre. very, very, it is so strange. Um does it really surprise anybody, though, that something strange and me go together? Probably shouldn't. That's another edition of Wild Card Wednesday. This has been Wild Card Wednesday on Sportsnet 960 The Fan. It's one of our uh, shorter editions ever. Not our greatest work. We've done better. We will no. do better uh, as the uh, week goes along. Um, Here's a couple. We do it every day. Yeah, you know what? You do it five uh, times a week. Gonna be... You're going to have hits and misses, right? We're going to improve. I guarantee Fridays is better than that. Uh, no question. Uh, Colin Kaepernick's name thrown out there. He is indeed a free agent. That's a good poll. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you erase political beliefs, it's tough to argue that that guy doesn't have the skill set, or at least did, to be an effective starting quarterback in the NFL. Uh, 16 touchdowns to four picks his last full season in the league. Uh, played in the Super Bowl. There's a good answer. Uh, someone saying, if you are working as a mortician, Pat, this is not going to be a good... Uh, work log to come back to that's a yeah, very i read very that one it was just a little dark. too dark for me dark like, that's, but, that's but pretty true. dark yeah, don't know if i really yeah. want to read that one because it's so dark right yeah. now it's, but not yeah. necessarily false that is that is very correct it's, uh, um, it's technically correct logan didn't like my uh, manscaping question i can tell that i can tell by the uh, tone in his uh, in his voice <laughs> so um sorry logan oh uh, no uh, it is what it is, Pat. It. Uh, I just uh, feel like when personal life ends like up we in needed Pat to go fans, there. Yeah, we just this is uh, it's going to happen. Typically, about twenty percent of the time, Pat's going to get personal life. We're all going to cringe, get through it, and we'll come back tomorrow and do better. It's part of uh, I think some of our <laughs> best moments on this segment have come when I've gotten personal life and made you cringe. There's it is nothing more exciting true. for me than when Pinder gets uh, uncomfortable and. Oh, boy, howdy, let me tell you, he gets uncomfortable. Uh, okay, let's do this. We'll take a break. A uh, later, little bit later on this hour, actually a little bit later on this program, top of the hour, we are going to try our hands at the old redraft. I know a lot of people have been doing these things or similar things like this. We'll give her a shot at the top of the hour. The 1998 NHL draft is what we're going to be focusing in on who should have gone number one overall that year, uh, who are some of the busts and who are some of the sleepers. Uh, we'll do that coming up at the top of the hour. But uh, some pretty significant things happened on this day in Calgary Flames history. That's when we come back on Pinder and Steinberg on Sportsnet 960 The Fan. Strange times for sure. Sportsnet 960 The Fan is here for you. No sports, no problem. Pinder and Steinberg continues right now on Sportsnet 960 The Fan. Let's go back in time and celebrate the amazing history of the Calgary Flames. Today in Flames history starts. Starts now. 
In 2008, the Flames and Sharks were playing Game 3 of their Western Conference Final at the Dome. The Sharks salvaged a split at home with a win in Game Number 2. It was not a good start for the Flames, who were down 3-0 just 3 minutes and 33 seconds into the first period. Back come the Sharks. Thornton having trouble getting away from Tangay on the back check. And right in his blow, he scores! On the loose puck, 1-0 on the power play. Here goes Patrick Marlow. Can't control it. And Phillip rides him into the boards. Pavelski, blow, he scores again! Chichu now right in, going around the goal. Short side, they score! Douglas Murray, pinching from the point. 3-0. But late in the first, Jerome McGinley scores to pull the Flames within two. Campbell on him along with Murray. Both defensemen in the corner for San Jose. And the puck is kept in at the line. Scores! Dion put up through traffic. And they're back in the game. In the second period, Damon Lankow made it a one-goal game. At the hash marks down low. Owen Nola to Ginley in front. They score! Lankow! Dion Phaneuf tied at 118 into the third. Cross to Phaneuf. Phaneuf a shot. They score! It's deflected in front. We're all tied at three. They stayed tied until there were four minutes left in the period when Owen Nolan, the former Shark, scored to complete the comeback, giving the Calgary Flames a 4-3 victory. Saric keeps it in. Tangy again in behind. Plays it to the corner. Owen Nolan a shot. He scores! Today in Flames history, celebrating 40 years of Flames hockey in Calgary on Sportsnet 960 The Fan. But the one thing that wasn't in that uh, in that nice little piece put together by Logan Gordon and producer Jordan was the thing that turned the whole game as we walk me back to Pinder and Steinberg. There's this day in Flames history with Logan Gordon. Um, and Logo, if you remember, the Sharks go up 3 nothing in that game, and it looked like they were going to take a 2-1 series lead until this happened. And you talk to anybody who played on that game on either side in 2008, April 13th, this changed the entire momentum of that hockey game. Off escape that goes wide. Marlowe hammered! Lined up by Saric! And there's a scrum after the fact! What a hit! Like, you know in cartoons, right? Where like there's a big uh, there's a big crash and all you see is like a cloud of dust and like <laughs> arms and legs coming out of the cloud of dust. That's what Patrick Marlowe looked like when he was absolutely eviscerated by Corey Sarich on one of the most devastating clean hits of all time. Like, that thing absolutely destroyed Marlowe. Like, I, I still get the wind knocked out of me when I see it. <laughs> And then that comeback happened from that point forward. A really impressive night. Now, the Flames would go on to lose that series. I, I believe the following game, Joe Thornton scored in the final 20 seconds of the third period to avoid going to overtime, and the Sharks tied the series and eventually won it in seven games. But that uh, that Corey Sarich hit, it's the, the thing that I think of. Whenever, whenever, when anybody ever says, like, can you ever think of a hit that changed the hockey game? That's one that comes to my yeah. mind before anything else. Yeah, no, and it's, uh, it's as you alluded to, players on both sides acknowledge as such. The crowd uh, clearly uh, back to life. I recall that was what everyone was just draped in the red that as that it were in that era, obviously. And it was uh, wow. Like building was back. Was it not? 
Oh, yeah, that, that lit up the building, and then they'd score four unanswered and uh, win that game by a 4-3 score. I remember uh, that would have been 2008 at that time. Afternoons were Kerr and Boomer, and and I was the uh, I was the update donkey, and uh, yeah, <laughs> I just and term then, of endearment, say, Logan. Don't think too much about that. <laughs> no more yeah, me thanks. being. Good one here. Thank you. No, that, again, that would be Logan taking things personally or being mad at me, which he always is. Um, but uh, no, I I was the donkey doing updates is more what I was trying to say. Not that um, that position is. I was just the donkey is the point I was trying to get at. Um, but yeah, I, uh, I I remember Boomer and I would do the first two hours from one till three together, and uh, we were talking about that hit. And at the I got to be honest with you. It's actually one of the questions that I've got in Wild Card Wednesday because I was thinking about this, knowing that this is going to be this date in Flames history that Logs is featuring. Guys, ten years ago, that would actually be what twelve years ago. Guys, I had the worst takes in the history of sports talk radio, like the worst takes, like just awful. Oh, give us just example. awful. Well, like I can, I, for whatever reason, I remember this series of the Flames and Sharks, and I can just like poor Dean, like poor Boomer, like we were very rarely in the same place. I was usually in the old dump of a studio, and he was at the Saddle Dome, and like you know, he, he we would be having a conversation, and he'd throw out an opinion, and I'd be like, I don't know, if, like his point was very saliently that uh, the Corey Sarich hit changed that game and for whatever reason at the time i was like i don't know if i i i, I thought i thought something different I, I don't remember what my what my take was other than i was like i don't know if i think that the sarge hit changed the game it's like what are you talking about of course it did and i remember game seven of that series uh mike keenan pulled kippersoff and put curtis joseph in way Oof. too early um yes. and dean being a smart person was like yeah, you shouldn't have done that. What was Keenan doing? And I was like, no, nah, that had nothing to do with anything. The Flames are going like, to And I just think back, and it was like, uh, so that would have been 12 years ago. I would have been 24, 23 years old. Um, and just awful takes. Like, just some of the worst, poorly thought out opinions in the history of sports talk radio. Boomer deserves a medal for having to work with some of the and specifically during that series between the Flames and the San Jose Sharks. No, then he got to work with Walker and then me cutting my teeth in sports talk radio. That's, he's uh, it's human's work, you would say, wouldn't you? <laughs> Especially for doing that. Here's a couple of other. Uh, see if uh, see if you gents remember any of these uh, different spots along Flames memory lane, going back to April 13th. Um, first of all, April 13th, 1984. Uh, it was the Smythe Division Final between the Flames and the Edmonton Oilers. Now, Flames were down one game to none. It was game two. Uh, they had a 4-1 lead before the Flames came all the way back. Um, Eddie Beers got them within two. Richard Crom, Kerry Wilson, and Steve Bozak gave the Flames a 5-4 lead before Gretzky tied it up with 45 seconds remaining to send the game to overtime. Uh, in overtime, Wilson would score his second goal of the game to give the Flames a 6-5 win to tie that series at one game of plate piece. I wasn't born... I was months from being born. Uh, you would have been, what, two, around two years old, Pinder and Logan. Uh, you definitely weren't born at that point. Um, mm. But, yeah, that was uh, this date in 1984. I believe that was the first year the Oilers made the Stanley Cup Finals. 
that uh, clearly was formative moments in, in my life being uh, nearly two years old. I just, it's, it's really a before and after moment that you can't deny shapes who Second I Second year, the Oilers. Second year, the Oilers made the finals, rather. Uh, Oilers would win that series in seven over the Flames, uh, go on to sweep Minnesota, and then get revenge on the New York Islanders who swept them the year before and beat the, Oilers, uh, beat the Islanders in five games in the Stanley Cup finals. So that was uh, the Oilers' first Stanley Cup in 1984. Uh, let's skip ahead to 2004. Uh, this was the date of game four of the first round series between the Flames and Vancouver Canucks in 04. This was the first ever playoff game I attended live as a human being. I was extremely excited to be able to watch a playoff game. I remember um, when, I don't know, like where were you in 04? Were you in Calgary at that time? I was just telling you the story off the top that I was in Toronto that summer, but I hadn't yet gotten to Toronto until about round three. So round one, I was at University of Lethbridge uh, doing some exams. Okay, so you were still in Round Alberta, but you weren't in Calgary. in Calgary. And then three and four, I was in Toronto. Because in, in round one, um, I got confused. For whatever reason, I thought that you were working in Toronto in 2008, but that wouldn't make any sense. So, yes, you did tell tell us that story earlier in the day. Um, but in 2004, when they put tickets on sale, they did it where you know season ticket holders got first crack and all that type of stuff but they released uh, a certain amount to the general public and they did it in person so i remember going down to the saddle dome to buy tickets when they went on sale there must have been five thousand people there standing in line trying to get tickets I went with a bunch of my buddies. Uh, we got our seats. We ended up with bleeders. Um, and I was so stoked to get game four tickets for the uh, 2004 Stanley Cup final. Uh, first round, rather. That was the second playoff game the Flames played at home. They won the game by a 4 nothing score. Uh, I remember Jonas. Uh, Jonas. Now I'm trying to. Now I'm, I'm drawing a blank. Who the heck was the goalie? Is it Hedberg who came in and played in that series? Kluche started. They had Ald oh. and Hedberg. Um, that seems about right. Um, what's that? The Moose? Johan Hedberg? Yeah. Yeah, Johan. Uh, thank you. Johan Hedberg was the goalie in 2004. Right. And all I the, I remember the Flames winning 4 nothing, and how loud that building was and how cool it was to see the power ring flashing red and, you know, what the, the sound was before the Flames came on the ice. It was so cool. But the coolest thing was everybody doing the Hedberg chant and pointing right at him. And that was, <laughs> that was maybe the best part of the evening. Flames even the series at two games apiece in 2004. Uh, that was the first home win of the 04 playoffs and it was a pretty electric atmosphere to be a part of in person all right cool yeah that um that was a fun spring in calgary spring into summer no question like that's we talked about it earlier today we're running not only that 04 uh, stanley cup final tonight but the blue jays 2015 alds with the texas rangers like both of those runs 04 for the flames 2015 for the blue jays was about a generation getting to experience for the first time a magical run in the postseason, right? And it certainly went a little bit further for the Flames and the Blue Jays, but you're coming out of a seven-year drought in Calgary. You're coming off nearly 20 years, 21, 22 years for the Blue Jays. Like uh, Those were significant moments for a generation of fans in both those, uh, both those season playoff runs, I guess. 
Yep, no doubt about it. And uh, a couple more before we uh, wrap things up on this date in Flames history because there were uh, some other pretty significant moments. This one, not as significant, but I'll take you back to 2013. This is the lockout season, so the Flames were not quite done their regular season at this point. Uh, it was 2013. They were taken on the Oilers and uh, a milestone goal for uh, a former uh, twenty, uh, sorry, a former third-round pick of the Calgary Flames. Here's a chance for the Flames. The shot by Reinhardt, he scores! Max Reinhardt, his first NHL goal, and the Flames now lead by a count of 4-1. to one. They'd win that game 4-1. to one. Uh, The old NHL career for Max Reinhardt didn't go the way that uh, anyone was hoping. It was pretty short, but that was his first NHL goal on this date in uh, 2013. But, uh, yeah, there you go. The lowest drafted of the Reinhardt brothers, Pat. The oldest and the first to get to the show. How about that? That's right. Uh, and finally, uh, the uh, last point that we'll get to is uh, this is also the, de- final, the, the date in uh, 2014, uh, April 13th, the uh, first, uh, first goal for Johnny Gaudreau. He scored his first goal and played his first game on this date on April 13th. Um, remember, he won the Hobie Baker Award. And then uh, immediately after that, uh, got on a plane and uh, came on down to uh, came on down to Calgary. Scored his uh, scored his first goal, and the uh, the the legend of Johnny Gaudreau was born from there. Uh, remember, at the time, we didn't know what the heck was going to happen. Like, was Johnny Gaudreau going to sign? Was he going to decide to go back to college? Like, him coming and joining the team and playing that final game on April 13th of 2014, that was a pretty big deal uh, for everyone involved in uh, in Flames hockey. Here's the, uh, here's the goal, uh, Johnny Gaudreau's first as a member of the Calgary Flames. The side, Monaghan. Back to Chris Green. Slams one towards the goal. Tipped in by Johnny Goudreau. His first NHL game. He's got his first NHL goal, and Calgary's on the board. And here's another. Here, here's one more. This is from the Hall of Famer Peter Marr. I was trying to find it. That's why I was stalling so much. I was trying to find Ooh. it in our archives. Finally found it. Here is Peter Marr's call of Johnny Goudreau's first goal. Back to the blue line. It goes to Breen in the Vancouver zone. He lets a shot go off. A stick scores! Chris Breen with a shot from the blue line was redirected. Was it yes, Johnny it Goudreau? Was. Yes, it was. Johnny He's... Goudreau, first NHL game, first NHL goal, and it's now a 4-1 game. How about so there that? you go. Uh, Pete Chris Lou Breen. On the <laughs> Chris Breen in the I highlights. love that Chris Breen was part of Johnny Goudreau's first NHL goal. You guys remember That's, what uh, number Johnny wore in that game? 63, I want to say. Was it? 53? Pat with the point. Ah, I knew it was one think, of the two. Bennett what did you say, Pender? 63. Ah, uh, 63 was Bennett. Yeah, 53 was Gaudreau. Um, and uh, what not? Did, did Breen wear 43? I don't know. I recall him in Abbotsford as number six, so I think. So I, I'm useless. Or maybe he was two. I think he might have been two in Abbotsford. But uh, yeah, he had a big training Your camp. Your memory the absolute worst. Wow, I just I saw him how many times in flame silks, and then like 150 in Abbotsford heat silks. Like I know where my head's going when Chris Breen comes up. It's not NHL stuff. <laughs> but you didn't even know what number he wore in Abbotsford. You like was it two or was it six? I think or, it was six or two. Ah, he could have worn 29 or maybe maybe 67. Who knows what number? Go look it up, you jerk. <laughs> 
Uh, okay, there is uh, our trip down memory lane, April 13th, this date in Calgary Flames history. Uh, thank you to Logo for voicing those up and for Jordan for putting them together. We'll have uh, kind of the main one each day and then a couple of other um, tertiary this days in Flames history every day. Well, tertiary. you think we can probably keep this going into May, probably into June as well, because the Flames, uh, they won their first Stanley Cup in May, t- May 25th of 89, and then... What they were playing into almost mid June in twenty two thousand four. So we'll have some uh, we'll have some opportunities to get you some good ones. There's some coaching firings and stuff like that. So I'm curious what we're able to pull up as we go. He wore six. And Looking for Chris Breen was forty three. So Pinder wore he wore, wore forty three at the Flames. Yeah, guess. he was six seven two twenty six. He was a big boy. Six six. Uh, no, that was big boy. Yeah, he was a he was a big defenseman. It's probably, you know, better suited Six, to seven other levels listed here. Uh, speaking of uh, speaking of players at different levels and where they should end up going and busts and drafts, so on and so forth. I, I'm pretty excited for our next segment, Mister Pender. Yes, we come back in our first of what I think will be a, a few times a week. Checking back in, we start in 1998 as we take a look back at the draft. Uh, it took place in a place called the Marine Midland Arena in Buffalo, New York. Pat, and we'll relive the magic when we come back. It's Pender and Steinberg, Sportsnet 960, The Fan. Two guys in different spots staying at home, but still talking on the radio. It's a miracle. Pinder and Steinberg is only on Sportsnet 960, The Fan. Yeah, we're still trying. It's uh, Ryan Pinder from my wife's old office, Pat Steinberg from his office in the Beltline, and Logan Gordon at our Basement Systems downtown studios. It is day 33 of the sports apocalypse, and so the trivia answer, Pat, becomes 33 days. That's how long you get into a pandemic before you start rejigging and reliving old NHL drafts, as today we take Mm. our first stab at looking back in time with the draft in 1998, hosted in Buffalo at Marine Midland Arena, one of a thousand names on uh, buildings in Buffalo in the NHL, uh, June 27th today. Interestingly, Pat, one day after an expansion draft took place, do you remember which team had the expansion draft in 1998? 98 would have been Nashville, I believe. That is correct. So Nashville 98, 99, I believe, was Atlanta, and then the expansion Twins, Minnesota. And Columbus followed that. So it was uh, the first of that wave of expansion. And, of course, Nashville would pick high in this draft. There's some other interesting notes around the 1998 draft. You may remember it as the Colorado Avalanche four picks in the first round draft class. But generally speaking, you, Logan, and I talking about it a bit. An underwhelming class in 1998, to be sure. Not really one that's highlighted with superstars so much as a few very good players and a lot of players that I think GMs thought would be better. Yeah, it was not not a great draft. I, I don't know. You, you go take a look at that first round. Not a lot of surefire NHL superstars. And don't get me wrong. There were a couple of good players that came out of that draft, but two of the best players that came out of that draft came way further on, which I think is the most fascinating part about Mm -hmm. the 1998 NHL draft. The Tampa Bay Lightning had the number one overall pick. If you remember, they drafted the Michael Jordan of hockey. Uh, That's what the (laughs) then owner of the Tampa Bay Lightning called Vincent LeCavalier, who they drafted number one overall. And, And look, 
at the time, LeCavalier was the odds-on guy. Like, there was nobody else that should have gone number one at that time. But, you know, probably put some unfair expectations on the guy. LeCavalier had a very good NHL career. Was he the Michael Jordan of the NHL? No, probably no. not. But a very good hockey player in his own right. He was the guy who went number one overall. But the fascinating thing is... Should he have gone number one overall now with, what, 22 years to go back and and look back at it? Yeah, so let's get right to it. Uh, Again, we talk about the class. uh, Zero 500 goal scorers in there. Zero 1,000-point players. A dozen players reached the 1,000-game plateau. And not a single goalie played 300 games in the league. So uh, I would suggest there's three to four Hall of Fame candidates, and that's where the discussion begins. The first three players taken in the draft, LeCavalier, Legwand, and Brad Stewart by the Lightning, Predators, and Sharks, respectively. All three of those players did eclipse a 1,000 games played in the league, but no one else in the top 10 did. And you talked about some late gems found. There might not be a better sixth round in the history of the NHL than what we saw in 1998 in terms of its ability to create good players. You could argue Pavel Datsuk is the best forward selected in the draft. He went 171 to Detroit and nine picks before him. Andre Markov, who is a top 50 all-time defenseman in terms of points in the league, he went to Montreal at 162. Also, maybe one of the more underrated guys in the entire draft, a tough guy that could intimidate, fight, and play, Chris Neal hit 1,000 games. He was taken 161 by the Ottawa Senators. Those three players, Neal, Markov, and Datsuk, they might be as good as any three players in any round taken back in 1998. Well, I mean, I don't know about you guys, um, but I don't think there's any, like you said, you could argue. I don't know how you can argue anything but Pavel Datsuk being the best player in that draft. Pavel Datsuk is the the one truly elite player and surefire, no questions asked, Hall of Famer that comes from this draft. I don't, I, Logan, I don't think you can even argue it. He went in the sixth round, 171st overall. I don't think there's any doubt about it that Pavel Datsuk's the best player coming out of that 98 draft. No, he's absolutely the most dynamic player that comes out of it. You're right as far as, you know, Ryan, you said you could make a case for a couple Hall of Famers, but that's probably because the bar is kind of lowered for what maybe you should consider a Hall of Famer, but Datsuk's the only clear choice out of anybody that comes out of that. And the fact of the matter is, is when you get him round six like that, it's, you know, better than winning the lottery. And I think for sure, looking back on it now, you would sit there and say that by far the best player to come out of it was well, was number 13. He's third in points in that draft, yet played almost more than 200 uh, games less than LeCavalier um, and only finished 30 points behind him and yep. about 200 games fewer than Brad Richards and finished only 14 points back of him. In terms of points per game, in terms of goals per game, nobody touches Dadsuk out of that draft. He's got his multiple Stanley Cups. He's, you know, he's done what he's done internationally. He's got his Selkie trophies. Like, Pavel Datsuk is one of the most cerebral players in NHL history. That guy's hockey IQ is as good as I've ever seen. He had ridiculously high skill level, but the thing that made Datsuk the player that he was was his ability to think the game at a level that maybe nobody else did when he was on the ice. That guy, that guy was incredible, and I, I, I think for me, uh, he's the no questions asked number one. Guy. And correct me if I'm wrong, but the Selkie trophies he won were consecutive as well, right? The three straight years, I believe that 08, 09, yes. and 2010, he won those, and then uh, the Lady Bing was also he was a four time winner of that uh, four years in a row as well. So. 
you know, to be at that sort of level, the only guy we've seen recently have that sort of dominance over a trophy is Patrice Bergeron. Yeah, he won three straight Selkies. Selkies. Uh, He won four straight Lady Bings. Um, And, you know, we can all make fun of what the Lady Bing is, so on and so forth. But uh, you you don't win it unless you're a pretty good player. He won the Lady Bing 6-7-8-9, and he won the Selkie 8-9-10. That's a pretty good run. That's that's seven trophies from 2006 to 2010. Not bad. Here's some other uh, notes from the draft class. I, I think we're all on the same page. Datsuk's your best forward. Andre Markov, who went nine picks ahead of him, your best defenseman. Uh, he's the only guy that actually played this season, Pat, out of this draft class that I can find. He was suited up in Russia in the KHL for a third straight season after not finding a deal to come back to the NHL that he was looking for after two years in the K, uh, a third year in the KHL. He's actually still active from the 98 mm-hmm. draft. That's kind of a cool note. And I think Markov, outside of Montreal, probably doesn't get the respect he deserves for the career he put up over a half point per game as a defenseman top 50 all time in points. Uh, he was a really, really, really good player for the Habs for a long time. I, I have Markov as my number three guy in redrafting this. It's crazy. My three, the, the first three guys on, on, you know, redrafting it all came outside of the first two rounds. I've got Datsuk one Richards two Markov three, Three, if I were to go back and redraft that, Datsuk and Markov are both sixth-round picks, and Richards is a third-round pick. Uh, it gets until pick number four until when I get to Vinny LeCavalier, who I would have had going number four that year. He went first overall. It's also what, what's also crazy is that the Lightning got both LeCavalier and Richards in that draft year, and they both mm-hmm. got drafted out of the same team in the queue yeah, in Ramuski, which is which is pretty crazy to think about. Those guys played together in the queue, then both got drafted the same year, same team, and won a Stanley Cup together in 2004, which is a, a kind of an interesting side note to the whole thing, too. You want another layer? They both played at Notre Dame, too, in Saskatchewan before they went to play major junior hockey. So it gets even crazier in terms of the, the lineage with those two players. Well, the uh, queue with you- a huge draft in this one because Mike Ribeiro comes out of the queue in this draft, Simone Gagne as well. Mm-hmm. Those are all guys that are going to be close to some of the better players mid-round here first from the first round at least. Well, and someone uh, texted in, why did Datsuk go so late? I think both Datsuk and Markov had the Russian I, I guess stigma. It would, it would be the Russian stigma that goes along with it. Like you didn't know if a lot of players were going to come over at that time. You didn't get a ton of looks at them at that time. Uh, so a player with players with that high level of skill, like it really was a lottery pick because you just didn't know a whole lot about them at that time. And it turned out for both the Habs and the Red Wings that sixth round picks of Russian players turned out to be incredible picks. But that like, I've always, everybody always talks about, it's funny, you know, Zetterberg was a late round pick of the Red Wings too, that we'll probably get to as him being Mm -hmm. a number one overall candidate down the road. But you know, everybody always talked about for the longest time, how good the Red Wings were at drafting late and these geniuses. And I've always said, well, is that the case? Like, if they're so good, why did Datsu go in the sixth round? And, and why did Zetterberg yeah. go as late as he did? If you're like, 
yes, it's nice to hit on those guys, but if they were so good, you would not have waited to the sixth round. If you knew that Datsuk was going to be that good, there was no way they would have waited until the sixth round to get him. So I, I feel like there's far more luck that goes into a pick than like that than there is skill or, or knowledge that other teams don't have. Yeah, if the Red Wings knew that he was going to be that good, they wouldn't have taken Yuri Fisher at 25. Who you know comes in at 300 NHL games and just about 60 points? If they had a feeling Datsuk was going to be what Datsuk was, pretty sure he would have gone with them at 25. Okay, so interesting. I want to pick up on something you said, Patty. You have Brad Richards ahead of Vinny LeCavalier. I th- I certainly think you could suggest that the second halves of their careers, Richards was much better, but. LeCavalier's best season is much, much better than Brad Richards' best season. LeCavalier, over 100 points, scored 50 goals in the league. Why do you have Richards ahead of LeCavalier? I, I, it comes down to the career, and because we've got the um, we've got the ability of hindsight being twenty twenty, it'll be interesting as we get into some of these drafts going forward, where guys are still very much active. That'll become really interesting. But we've got the hind, we've got the ability of hindsight being twenty twenty, with pretty much everybody in the ninety eight draft class being done their careers and being able to you know, take the entirety of their careers together. And and Brad Richards was was still a pretty effective player into the final two three years of his career and and the differences in their best seasons yeah i mean le cavalier had the best season of the two guys but uh richards was a very good player from entering the league he was uh, a pretty good bet for 40 to 60 assists every year for about six or seven years um he was good at at different stops and he didn't fall completely off a cliff like le cavalier did so when it comes to the overall career that's why i've got Richards ahead of LeCavalier. Uh, other guys of note, Calgary Flames fans will recognize Alex Tangay. He's the fourth highest scorer from this draft class and went 12th overall to Colorado. We noted it. It was one of four first-round picks from the Avs back in 98. Tangay at 12. Then Martin Skula and Robin Regeer, a pair of defensemen, before they selected Scott Parker, who was as intimidating and tough as perhaps anyone else in this draft class, although Chris Neal did have the better career. Uh, with over a thousand games and much fewer for Parker, those are the four first rounders the Avs selected. But Parker had a Flames sweet beard. He did. It was spooky facial hair. Uh, Flames at six select Rico Fada. That would go down as a poor decision, and he would also, in his very limited success he uh, enjoyed in his career, would have most of it outside of the Flames organization once they'd given up on him, yes. so to speak. There were um, there were a bunch of busts in that first round. Fata would be the like it, it's tough to call David Leguan to bust even though he went number two and they the Predators projected him to you know be a far far higher end of a score than he ended up being but David Leguan still played more than a thousand NHL games and most of those games were played with the with the Nashville Predators. He was a pretty good player, and his two-way game, I think, was underappreciated. He still finished with more than 600 NHL points. So to call David Leguan a bust at two, I think is unfair. You know, would you have him at number two going back? No, but he was still a very good NHLer for more than mm-hmm. 1,100 games. But the bust of this draft, Rico Fata at six, no doubt. Um, Jeff Hirama, or Harima, uh, at 11 mm-hmm. to Carolina. Um 
Michael Henrik went 16th to Edmonton and didn't play a game in the league. Um, Patrick DeRoche went 14th overall uh, to Arizona and played 11 games in goal. And Matthew Schwenard went 15th overall to Ottawa and played less than 10 NHL games. There are... Like the the ones that came after Fata, like was Fata a bust at six overall for the Flames? Absolutely, yep. but at least he played into the hundreds in NHL games. <laughs> a lot of the guys that came after him in that first round that are in the same category didn't even get into the twenties. Uh, some good players in the twenties: Simon Gagne, Scott Gomez, both taken uh, between twenty and thirty. Round two highlighted by Mike Fisher, who actually has played the most seasons out of anyone in the NHL, eighteen of them. Uh, although he's done now. Ribeiro also in that second round. Brad Richards at 64 in the third round. Uh, Brian Gianta went at 82. That's a pretty darn good player, an undersized player. Maybe we see, you know, not unlike the Russian stigma, the small guy stigma. Uh, and the Edmonton Oilers fans have a, a player that I think they will remember fondly. A thousand plus games for Sean Horkoff. They got him at 99 in round four back in 98. But that was the last really solid, certainly the last thousand game player before we get to the triumvirate of great players in round six in uh, Neil, Markov and Datsuk. And maybe I'm speaking too glowingly in Neil, but for a thousand games, the role that Chris Neil played, he doesn't get enough love in my opinion. I think I don't think Horkoff ever got enough love either. I know that the contract sometimes soured people on him, but I was a really good hockey player. They don't get to the Stanley Cup final in 2006 without Horkoff and what he did. He was a really good player for the Oilers, um, and and that's a, a real nice sleeper pick. The ultimate sleeper in this draft, though, came in the eighth round. Uh, Michael Ryder played more than 800 NHL yes. games as the 216th overall pick. Uh, finished with just under 500 NHL points as well. Uh, he went to eighth round to Montreal in 1998. He was the ultimate sleeper. That's um, pretty impressive to go in the eighth round to get picked uh, to get passed over so many times like that for 215 picks to go by without hearing your name and to still get more than 800 NHL games to your name. That's pretty darn impressive for Ryder, and he was a pretty good player for a good four or five year run there in the NHL. He was never elite, but he had a couple of years where he was uh, he was pretty darn solid, where he could be good for in the 50 to 60 point range. So, um, yeah, Michael Ryder in the eighth round was a pretty impressive pick too. Okay, Toronto Maple Leafs at 10 take Nikolai Antropov, Patty. Uh, he, far and away, the greatest hockey player Kazakhstan has ever produced at the NHL level. Uh, he gathered 465 points over his career. No other player from Kazakhstan has even eclipsed 100. And in fact, most of them were Canadians that got passport switched to be Kazakh so they could play uh, as non-imports in the KHL. Nigel Dawes, Dustin Boyd, Brandon Bochinski, all uh, considered Kazakhs uh, in terms of their hockey passports. So Antropov, really? Yeah, Antropov, an interesting note there. And Alexei, Alexei Ponikarovsky, uh, Ukrainian-Canadian, he went uh, later in this draft as well, one of the highest-scoring players from Ukraine of all time. Uh, so there's some uh, and there's some other interesting notes from 1998. Also, I have a little more trivia. Sorry, go ahead. No, I wanted to just throw out as well, too, one thing we haven't mentioned, uh, a terrible draft in goal, this one. Uh, pretty yes, bad as really far as was. things go. Andrew Raycroft and Ontario Nidimaki, probably by far your two standouts with over 200 NHL games. Uh, Calgary Hitman coach Jason LaBarbera was also drafted in this draft by the New York Rangers. Uh, and should mm -hmm. mention that the Philadelphia Flyers, with the odd choice of drafting 
uh, two goaltenders, seven picks apart from each other. Uh, at 168, they drafted Nidamaki, and then at 175, they drafted Cam Ondrick, who you might not recognize because he never played in the NHL. Other Flames, uh, they did pick numerous times in this uh, nine-round draft that saw 258 players go. Blair Betts in round two, their best pick. He uh, almost got to 500 games, 477. And after that, not a lot of success. Sean Sutter did not play. Um, Sabarin, the netminder, nine seasons, but only 57 games played. And a whole lot of swing and miss outside of uh, that. Betts really the only uh, NHLer that uh, had any staying power in the league and carved out a bit of a niche for himself. Not a great draft class for the Calgary Flames, who had two picks in round four, no sixth-round pick, and a whole lot of guys that just didn't play in the league. That was not a golden era of Calgary Flames drafting. There was no, a stretch sure wasn't. there. Oh, I want to say from like right around this time, 97, 98, because 97, the year before, they took Daniel Kachuk at sixth, at sixth overall. That didn't work out very well either. There was a stretch there from, I want to say, 97 to about somewhere like 07. There's about a 10-year stretch where there just were not a lot of hits. There were, the, yeah. there, there were some really bad picks in there, whether it was uh, Craig Button at the helm or Daryl Sutter at the, at the helm. There was just, it was a rough goal for Flames drafting there for a little while. And uh, 1998, no exception with Rico Fata at number six. Last one for you. Can you remember? I, we started the, talking about it. it. Was the day after the expansion draft? Who did the Nashville Predators get from the Calgary Flames as part of an expansion draft deal? Ooh, as part of a trade. There was an agreement not to take a Flames netminder, and the Predators got player X, who um, I, I recall as a Predator. wasn't wasn't their worst uh, expansion draft player. Depth defenseman. I'm not going to get Joel it. Bouchard. Uh, Joel Bouchard. Okay, I would not have got that. How about even that? if I would have. Yeah. Joel Bouchard was uh, is actually a really good conversation on uh, the Flames' time machine with Kirsch, one of my more enjoyable ones that I've listened to. Um, but uh, I would not have gotten Joel Bouchard as the guy that went to the uh, that went to the Nashville Predators. Very interesting. All right, boys. Well, that's 1998. We'll uh, we'll do another one later this week, and we'll move forward to 1999. We'll come back next with a little more uh, questions and answers in this in these curious time as we have people ask Pat. Sportsnet 960, the fan. Pinder and Steinberg continues on Sportsnet 960, the fan. Always fun jumping back into the NHL draft. We'll see. Uh, Another opportunity to do that later this week. Reminder, we've got all kinds of great playoff sports for you tonight on the radio. We're reliving the 2015 ALDS between the Texas Rangers and the Toronto Blue Jays. Game one goes at 6 o'clock pregame uh, right after Ron McClain's in conversation. Half past five, be a good guess on that. And then Flames tonight, 8 till 11, game one of the Stanley Cup final against the Tampa Bay Lightning from 2004. We all remember where we were for that series to be sure. We've got some updated numbers in Alberta for COVID-19. No, we're not news radio, but I think uh, once a day, not a bad idea to pass along uh, the daily testing results. 81 new cases in Alberta today, Pat, which uh, has been a pretty steady number for the province for a while here. We haven't grown dramatically nor shrunk dramatically as you look over uh, a few days at a time. 
Yeah, it all goes down to the testing totals, and uh, they completed just under 2,500 tests over the last 24 hours. So 81 confirmed on just under 2,500 tests. Uh, They continue to ramp up testing capacity in the province, and uh, they're hoping to be able to do uh, somewhere in the uh, 20,000 range per day uh, by sometime in May. So the testing, uh, the testing rate continues to go up. The numbers aren't going up dramatically with the testing going up, which I think is the uh, most positive sign of all. It does seem like the modeling that was put out last week by the government uh, we're following, and government officials, including our chief medical officer, continue to say that we can beat that modeling and come out ahead of it if we continue to be vigilant with the physical distancing that we're doing right now, which is enough for me to say let's keep doing it. If we can beat those projections and be out of this thing before the modeling shows, which isn't all that like you take a look at the modeling um kind of the the likely scenario and it has us kind of being through this thing totally in july uh has us peaking sometime in may if we can beat that and be out of it before that uh, that that's going to be even better so i i still think that the trend is as positive as you could get in a pandemic right now and another bit of data uh, over half the cases in alberta right around 50 percent on the button uh, people have now recovered from from yes. the virus so that's also a positive figure in there as well quick one for you both before we go to break because we got elliot freeman to get you to ron mclean at five o'clock which series would you rather sit down and watch rangers blue jays which we have on your radios at six o'clock or flames lightning which will start at eight o'clock well because the blue jays win probably toronto texas and how unwatchable the hockey was in 04, that probably doesn't get much of a vote swung that way either. Never mind. Yeah, the outcome certainly would play a role, right? Logo? Yeah, Blue Jays' victory is probably a more enjoyable thing for me because even though you'll watch some Flames wins, uh, you know the ultimate uh, decider is going to be disappointment. So, All right, we'll come back. Our NHL insider, Elliot Friedman, to wrap the program. Sportsnet 960, The Fan. Calgary guys staying at home. Ryan Pinder and Pat Steinberg talking sports, pop culture, life, and anything else. Your afternoon diversion is right here. Stream online at sportsnet.ca slash 960. Download the Sportsnet or Radio Player Canada apps. Pinder and Steinberg are on Sportsnet 960, the fan. There seems to be, a, in some of the, the, the I guess, uh, projected scenarios out there, a really close link between universal testing and then getting leagues up and running even without fans in the sense that they need to have controlled environments. Are you seeing those two things connected as well? Yes, I do believe Ryan, that is true. I think testing will mass testing. I do believe is going to be key in the next phase. I can't give you a timeline on that. You know, the only thing I can say is I really believe these leagues are going to try to play until they're explicitly told, no, they can't play. And, And that's kind of the rule I go with. Like, you know, the commissioner was on CNN this afternoon with Anderson Cooper, and he's basically said, you know, it's not their decision to come back. Like, they're at the mercy of, of other decisions, right? Other people with more say. And I think that's the right answer. But until you're told no, um, you know, you're not going to give up. You're going to say, okay, what is this scenario? What is this scenario? What is this scenario? What is this scenario? And I think that's exactly what's going to happen. I think, I think they're going to make plans based on we're hoping we're coming back and until we're told no um we're not coming back we are we are going to come back and 
I do think mass testing is critical. Um, but I think the other thing, you know, from Hawks' point of view is there's players overseas. You know, mm-hmm. how is that going to work? Are you going to have to uh, – I, I was saying in Toronto, I was on last hour, a buddy of mine who's a doctor was saying to me, so if you're in the NHL and you got players in Europe or anywhere, really, are you going to say 14 days from now, you know, you're going to be traveling, so you got to quarantine yourself again. And mm-hmm. if you haven't been quarantining already – and then when you come back, before you can even go to a training camp, you've got to quarantine for 14 more days. Like, how is it all going to work? And I don't know the answer to those questions, but that's a buddy of mine who's a doctor who was answering that. Elliot Friedman, our NHL insider, joins us Mondays here on Pinder and Steinberg. Elliot, still kind of your feel that we probably won't know anything in terms of an NHL timeline. What did you say? Was it, was it May or June in terms of when we might actually even know what a timeline might look like here? No, I, I, I don't think so. I think it all comes down to, you know, when they know that they, when or if they know they can do a playoff, you know, I'll, I'll tell you one thing. I, I did have someone tell me this week that, they were wondering, like, it, let's just say the playoffs go into September, right? Um, can you have a draft after Labor Day? Because that's when the junior teams, in theory, are going to start showing up again, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, for example, let's just say you're, you know, you're a junior team and you've got, Lafreniere or Byfield or Drysdale or Perfetti or one of these talented young guys, um, you know, like, are you going to know are you going to have that guy? And so that's what he was wondering strictly from uh, a league position. I mean, we all know the calendar is going to get pushed back. We know that they're going to need some time uh, in between the end of this season, whenever that is, if they play it. And the beginning of next season, probably three weeks to a month. Uh, we know the commissioner said today on Anderson Cooper that they need a three-week uh, training camp at least before we play anything this year. I mean, I got to tell you, I don't, I, I don't know if I have a lot at, at this point in time as we talk. Right. Have you? Because you know, we we talk with you once a week, and CJ's on with us a couple times a week, and. Seems like, depending on the day, the 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 feel from the NHL or the optimism level from the NHL is is one that's probably much like us and ever changing and kind of a moving target. But do you do you get a sense as to where the NHL is right now in terms of a an optimism level, a pessimism level of of being able to get this thing restarted? I think that changes on a daily basis. I did have one one guy tell me that you know if he wasn't on the I guess there was a board of governors call last week and he wasn't on the call. And he told me after, you know, he was briefed by the people in his organization, uh, he was not very optimistic. And then, you know, as the week progressed again, he heard different things and he was more optimistic. Mm -hmm. I I, honestly, I, I think Pat, they're like us. I think it changes every day. Like we have no idea and we won't have an idea probably until the summer. Yeah. Yeah, it's very true. Um, I'll switch gears on you from that to uh, the the really awful news over the weekend about the passing of Colby Cave. Just 
what what do we I mean, first of all, uh, a thought on on how awful this must have been for the family and and knowing that, you know, losing a loved one in the current world situation is probably even more difficult than usual because you just don't get the same access to people in hospital. Just a a thought on the passing of Colby Cave over the weekend. Well, I think that's, you know, very, very true. Um, I I think that's very true. you know, I mean, the whole situation is just sad and it's brutal. Um, he's a young man. He's got so much of his life ahead of him. Um, and I think that is true, too, is that because of the circumstances that happened with the whole coronavirus, it affects, you know, can the family see him, um, things like that. It's very limited in scope in terms of, you know, what you can do and who you can see in hospital. And I think it also, you know, like it affects things like decisions to even go to a hospital. It's it's mm-hmm. so hard. It's so hard, Pat. And, you know, I, I think that I, when we first heard about it, I think we were all surprised. Um, you know, the I, I, there were some people that were saying that they were hoping, you know, it would be like, would it be a battle? Would it, would it be something over time that, you know, some kind of, you know, you're hoping that, you know, a young, healthy person that somehow his his body can make some sort of recovery that can at least give you something to hold on to. And it, it obviously never happened. I mean, I remember when, when he was claimed off waivers from Edmonton, from Boston by Edmonton, you know, I, I didn't know a lot about him. And, you know, I remember, I think it was Peter Shirelli who told me that he was a guy you just wanted in your organization. He said, you know, we hadn't had a lot of winning in Edmonton. Um, you want you want to build a positive culture, and that's the guy that you kind of want to be part of that. Whether he's in the NHL or he's in the AHL, he was a guy who beat a lot of odds, and you wanted that in your group. He was a really positive guy. And I know Keith Gretzky was a guy who had a lot to do with, with having him in Boston. He was in Edmonton at the time, too. And he was like the same thing. He's like just a positive guy you want around your group. And I don't know if you saw that tweet that the Bakersfield Condors put out with, um, with him signing that uh, young child's uh, jersey and saying, I'll, I'll put it here so you – um, so you won't forget me. I mean, it's so heartbreaking, but it was so mm-hmm. him. And um, I don't know. It, it just—I don't think I'm saying anything that's really surprising or news to anyone. It's just—it's—it's it's so brutal and it's so bad. And I—I I, I really, my heart really goes to all the families that are battling things, whether it's COVID or non-COVID, and you just can't see each other. You can't be with each other. It's just adds another level of pain and unfairness to this whole situation. Yeah, well said. Do, do you um like it, it and it kind of just came as such a shock. Like was was yeah. anybody was anybody aware that this might be a risk at the time or did it come as a shock to everyone involved from what you understand? No, I I, I think that it was I think it was a total shock. I don't think anybody had anything that they kind of knew about it. Um you know um I, I just heard it kind of, it kind of came out of nowhere. Um, as far as I know, and I could be wrong. I really haven't 
pressed anybody about it. Of course. I didn't hear that there was anything that there was uh, a condition um, that led to this, as far as I know. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I guess from, um, I, I guess in terms of what you uh, what you have just said about the young man, like that that seems to be what everybody's talking about is that he's uh, like he was universally loved by teammates and and coaches loved to have him. Like it just you know, and and you hear a lot of these things when when tragedies happen, but it sure does feel like this was uh, this is a guy that that truly was universally loved by by his team. Yes, he was. There's there's no question about that. He was a he was a really popular teammate. And and like I said, I think that, um, you know, he was a guy you wanted in your organization because he was upbeat and he was positive. And that's why Edmonton went out to get him. I remember Peter Shirelli telling me that. He said, you know, first of all, I think he's a good depth player. But secondly, I think he's he's going to be good for a lot of people we have here. And, mm-hmm. you know, that Boston room where he came from, you guys know about that group. Like, they are... There are a lot of really mature, smart, uh, bright people in that organization among that team who uh, lead and carry themselves in unbelievable ways. And uh, he was a fit in that group for sure. Uh, with Elliot Friedman, what can you uh, what can you tell us about the uh, Ask Thirty One Thoughts podcast? You just did one with Austin Matthews. You've had a couple uh, of other players on. Tell us about the latest on the podcast. Seems like you're doing some good work. Well, well, that we'll leave that up to the viewers to decide, Pat. Um, <laughs> you know, this week I think it's uh, J- we're, we're doing St. It's St. Louis Blues goalie week. It's Jake Allen and who's tomorrow, and I believe it's uh, Jordan Bennington who's on Thursday. And uh, we're looking at some other guys. And you know, I mean, at this point in time, we're all just trying to talk to people, right? And um, you know, it's, like the thing I, I look at it, guys, is that. Um, you know, I, I'm, I took the week off 31 Thoughts last week because I'm working on an, on an oral history of something, but I'm, I'm getting back to doing it this week. And, look, I, I'm far from essential. I recognize that. I, I don't even think I'm essential in my own home. But if we can, you know, just give people something else to think about and entertain them, you know, we got to do that. So we're doing Tuesdays and Thursdays, and we're also putting out our regular podcast tomorrow. And uh, well, we're taping it tomorrow. We're going to put it out Wednesday. We had a Brooks-like one today. Hey, anything we can do to entertain people, we're going to try because we're, uh, we're all in this together, Pat, even you, me, and Ryan. And we know how selfish teammates the three of us are. We're all in this together. <laughs> any, uh, well, you, any, you're hiding ahead, projects Ryan. on us. So a peak of selfish, Elliot. You're, you're teasing of what's this unnamed project, this oral history no, no, of what? I, Come I, on I, now. I don't like to give it away. I really don't. So – uh, I'm working on a big oral history of something that's coming out on Sunday, I think. Okay. Uh, Ooh, okay. We'll keep an eye for that. Any uh, any takeaways? You guys from... will hate it. I'll tell you that much right now. <laughs> something to do with the Oilers, I'm sure. Any? Uh, he says he's positive. I don't know what this is. He's then he says stuff <laughs> like that. Anything from those uh, from some of the chats you've had, Austin Matthews or Aaron Ekblad, or anything that jumps off the page to you that, that's been really interesting? I, I really enjoyed Ekblad's uh, dog barking in the whole thing. I thought it was uh, it was really good. The dog wanted to go out. Ekblad was uh, was really good. And he, these guys are really good. And uh, Matthews, the the thing about Matthews is like uh, he's a big Tiger King guy, like a lot of these guys are. 
someone had asked uh, Trump about a presidential pardon the day before, so I asked if he felt that Joe Exotic should be pardoned, and then he said he wanted. Then I asked he would want to bring him to a Leaf game, and uh, I got to tell you, I like that. Like just that. I hope that's a Sportsnet <laughs> broadcast. Number one, <laughs> and, you know the other thing Matthews talked about was really good. Was he doesn't like to talk a lot about um, individual stuff, really? But he was really good talking about he had, like the goals record in Toronto was 54, Rick Vive, and he was on pace to get 55. And you know he did admit he would have liked the opportunity to go for. It, and he talked a little bit about how he'd gotten to know Vive, and um, I, I did like that. I thought that was you know like the the one thing now is and you guys can tell me if you think I'm nuts, but um, sometimes I think we like there's nothing wrong with wanting to do to to get an individual goal as long as you're like a team guy and you know sometimes I think guys are afraid to admit they want to get like an individual goal because they'll be mm-hmm. labeled as selfish and you know, I think he his guard was up a bit about that while play was going on but I don't see a single problem with coming out and saying you know what I would have loved to have gotten that record. I don't see that feels like a hockey culture thing to me. Yeah, like guys be. are very, always sure. very concerned about the perception of selfishness, even if they know they're not. It's mm-hmm. always team first, always team. Ask them a question about individual. Oh, well, the team stuff's important. Maybe the end of my career. Blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's how it affects me. Last one for you. Can you help me encourage Pat to get a dog? I think he needs a a uh, isolation pet. Yeah, why not? Well, seriously, Here's... the only the only thing the only bad we're we're debating getting a dog too, Pat. We've talked <laughs> about it a lot. We think our our little guy would like it. The problem is with my schedule, um, it would mean my uh, my wife would have to do most of it, and like there'll be nights where we finish hockey night or we finish hockey night like one a.m. on Saturday mornings Eastern. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, Rudy and I would like to go get a glass of wine, you know, wine after the show just to have one. And David Amber can never come because he's like, oh, I got to go home and walk the dog. And (laughs) that is the only negative. Other than that, dogs are fantastic. Um, I'm I'm a dog person over a cat person, a hundred times out of a hundred. But the only problem is, is that they run your life. But other than that, <laughs> dogs are fantastic. So as long as you are prepared and go into it positively, you will have a great time. I would recommend it. I had See, a dog a... when we were a kid. It was basically Cujo Jr. I've, I've <laughs> missed dogs since then. I... I'm a staunch dog person too. I had dog. Uh, I had I had uh, two family dogs growing up. Like it, like I'm a big time dog person. My problem is, I've got the similar issue with you and your schedule in terms of my hours and stuff like that. But I also live alone, so it would be fine during a pandemic. As soon as we're out of this, and as soon as we get hockey back, and I'm back to work in 17 hour days, well then that dog's gonna die. And so I, I feel like it would be cruel to <laughs> to get a dog. I just feel like that would be cruel and unusual punishment so that's what is keeping me from doing it uh i i think that's very fair and very honest and very reasonable you only have one solution to this start bringing the dog to the games <laughs> love it that love is it. a good solution be uh he'd be a better better host than i would be by the way by the way i, I uh i see it could call it could call just as good play-by-play as willis <laughs> yes. i bet it 
bet it will. Uh, I, we'll, we'll make sure that we tell them that. What uh, I, I got to say, you've been talking about Homeland Season 8. I, uh, yeah. I finally I finally started watching Season 8. Uh, best season yet. I'm five episodes it's, in. It's, it's, I it's unreal. I haven't episodes, so don't tell me. Um, but it, it's like Homeland, it started great. It dipped, and now it's it's back up. I, I It's dynamite this year. It's, it's really good, Pat. Good for yeah. you. I'm loving it. I'm loving it so far. All right, Elliot. Thanks for doing this as yeah, always. We're looking at right now the unveiling of the 32,000-piece puzzle. <laughs> oh, dear. That is so huge. you got to put a picture of that on Twitter. We will when it's, when it's done. Okay. So, so in September. The picture will be up in next July, July 2021. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that's crazy. See you, Elliot. All right, guys. Take care. That's Elliot Friedman from Hockey Night in Canada. He joins us every Monday here on Pinder and Steinberg. Also, thanks to Ryan Pike from FlamesNation.ca. Also joined us today, all up at Sportsnet.ca slash 960. Up next, Ron McLean and In Conversation. He's got a couple of really cool guests. And then a little bit later on this hour, uh, we're going to check in with the Blue Jays and the Texas Rangers. Game one of the 2015 American League Divisional Series that all culminated in Jose Bautista's bat flip home run in game five. That's coming your way tonight. And following the Blue Jays and Rangers game one, we're going back to game one in 2004, the Stanley Cup final between the Calgary Flames and the Tampa Bay Lightning. That's all coming your way tonight on Sportsnet 960. The fan for Logan Gordon, for Ryan Pinder. My name is Pat Steinberg. That'll wrap us up on Pinder and Steinberg. Talk to you tomorrow on Sportsnet 960. The fan.